Iowa caucuses are finally upon us, and the stakes couldn't be higher than ever. With a record number of Democrats running, one candidate is hoping to take home the gold. The last time a Democrat won the nomination without winning Iowa was all the way back in 1992, when Tom Harkin won the Iowa caucus despite losing the nomination to Bill Clinton. This was mainly due to the fact that Harkin was a popular longtime senator from Iowa, making the other Democrats' chances of winning that caucus highly unlikely. As of this point, the race appears to be a slugfest between two candidates, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, both of which have launched negative ads against one of one another, with Bernie Sanders trying to accuse Joe Biden of being too conservative for a Democrat, even accusing him of trying to cut Social Security, while Joe Biden has attacked Bernie Sanders is too far to the left and too unelectable, arguing that he is the best Democrat to take on Trump. The race appears to be a contest between the more moderate wing of the party and the more far left wing of the party. Current state of the race appears to be a toss up between both Biden and Sanders, with them both deadlocked on top in the polls. However, that doesn't mean there aren't other candidates in the race. For example, Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is hoping that his young message can carry on to the caucus. He also believes that since he is a Midwest mayor, that could carry over to the Midwest state of Iowa. However, that doesn't mean that he's the only one left. Elizabeth Warren is hoping to make herself an alternative to Bernie Sanders. Although she has been struggling in the polls, she did receive an endorsement from the Des Moines Register, making it more, uh, more likely that she could get a push. Other candidates also see chances for an upset. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar believes her Midwestern appeal could help her do better than expected in the state. Some polls show her polling as high as 8%. On top of that, Andrew Yang is also hoping that his grassroots message will help him do better than expected. Other candidates are looking at a long-shot chance, like Tom Steyer, the billionaire who hopes that his message will help him do better than expected there. Tulsi Gabbard hopes her unique message will also help her as a Hawaii congresswoman do better than expected in the Iowa caucus. As for Colorado Senator Michael Bennett and former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, it appears that their chances are more unlikely due to the fact that they have been polling under 1% in most polls and lack the name recognition needed to win this primary. Another player is former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who's hoping he can make a splash despite his late entry into the race. However, although there is no ballot in the Iowa caucus, it does seem more and more unlikely that he will do well here due to the fact that he's mainly campaigning uh, in some of the later primaries taking place after Super Tuesday. In fact, the New Hampshire ballot the South Carolina ballot, and the Nevada primary ballot has uh, not included Mr. Michael Bloomberg. On the Republican side, there are two Republicans challenging President Donald Trump. However, it does appear unlikely that they will be able to make a smash. For starters, Joe Walsh, the former Illinois congressman, 
uh, lacks the name recognition needed to do well in a primary here. Still, he is hoping that his appeal as a former congressman from rural Illinois will appeal to Iowa voters, especially since he himself went to college in Iowa. Bill Weld is also hoping for a small boost, although he is mainly hoping to do well in the New Hampshire primary. However, as both of those candidates seem to be more unconventional compared to other Republicans, it is more unlikely that they will be able to defeat Donald Trump in this caucus. Most polls show Donald Trump uh, uh, winning by over 90%, which makes their chances nearly impossible of of taking him down. Donald Trump appears to be on top in these polls as he is the incumbent. All right, everyone, welcome back to Politics Weekly. We've got a lot to get through today. Uh, I've got some announcements, but first, I want to welcome our returning guest. He was a candidate, a Democratic candidate, for governor of Kansas in 2018. Um, he was also, uh, he also made headlines for being one of the youngest uh, people ever to run for governor of a state. Uh, due to a loophole he found in his state's constitution that allowed him to run at a young age. Uh, he's been on the show before, and he joins us again. Mr. Jack Bergeson, thank you for joining us today. Yes, it's great to be back this afternoon. Um, so, uh, I, I know we have a lot of stories to get through, but first, um, I want to talk about uh, your... Uh, I want to talk about uh, the Iowa caucuses because I know you have some predictions to make. Um, as you, as for those who uh, are unaware, the Iowa caucuses, as of the time this is being posted, this episode is being posted, are now less than a week away. Uh, now, this is very crucial uh, for all the Democrats running because the last, um, the last primary, uh, the last time that a Democrat uh, running for president lost the Iowa caucus, but still ended up winning uh, the Democratic nomination for president was all the way back in 1992 uh, when Bill Clinton uh, won uh, the uh, the presidency, or he won or he won the presidency, but first he won the Democratic nomination despite losing the Iowa caucus. And the only reason he lost the Iowa caucus was because uh, the senator he lost to was Tom Harkin, who was a longtime senator from Iowa at the time, um, and uh, most candidates didn't compete in that state because they thought uh, a popular senator from that state of Iowa, they had no chance against him. Uh, so very crucial. Um, right now the polls show a deadlock, with some polls even indicating a three-way tie uh, between uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, uh Former South Bend, Indiana uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Some people are also talking about uh, the potential that Elizabeth Warren could come out on top. Some people have also been talking about the fact that there could be some upsets. Uh, Perhaps an Andrew Yang uh, could do better than expected. Perhaps an Amy Klobuchar could do better than expected. Uh, And I want, with that, I want to turn it over to Jack to talk about his predictions for the Iowa caucuses. You know, I. I, you know, I, I do have to lay my bias up front, so I don't think it's fair if I don't. Um, I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter pretty hardcore. 
but I'm definitely trying to look at this race objectively and through the lens, okay, objectively, who's going to win Iowa? And I was having a real hard time making that prediction until a couple minutes ago, because um, we had seen some polls, you know, I I remember that one poll that came out a few days ago that had running like it was a big place that was not make any sense. Um, that definitely seems more of an outlier. And the poll came out this morning showing him in first, um, and Biden in third, second. I think the if you're going off, if you're going off, I think of a slightly more traditional voter model. I think you have, I think you have, I have to put a Bernie prediction as Victor in Iowa, um, simply because I think he has a good ground game. I think he has the right groups energized. I mean, he's playing, he came out on top of, he, he won the Des Moines Register poll. He won a poll that was released this morning. He definitely seems to be coalescing to support in Iowa. Um, it seems to kind of be getting a lot of the weight deciders, and it's definitely the way I'm reading this. Um, but Pete still has a decent shot. He also has a good ground game in Iowa, but I think he appeals to a narrow set of voters. And he appeals to definitely more, definitely more outwardly centrist Democrats, and and you're more politically aware, like you're, like the Democrats that can. Bernie Sanders tends to get more apolitical people and like people who don't always vote. Pete Buttigieg is kind of, his support is kind of hard fast, but I don't think it has a lot of growth kind of attract, but uh, the people who follow politics and are Democratic Party loyalists tend to get that kind of support. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't think he has a lot of them to grow um, in Iowa, and he needs to win Iowa, because he, he will not do well in Nevada or South Carolina. I mean, so if I am on the Pete Buttigieg campaign, I'm like, we well, have to win Iowa. Um, because he has no chance to make it up elsewhere, to make any momentum up, you know. Um, and so I think that Iowa's going to be a very interesting night. I think if Bernie or Biden wins Iowa, if Biden has an outside chance, I'm not going to rule it out. Um, he does, you know, he has high name recognition. I mean, possible something more, you know, the way the contest work, it's not just a simple, you know, ballot. You know, there's a lot of infighting that happens within the caucus site. So, you know, we could see an upset. An upset, upset in caucus are very possible, uh, much more than primary. Um, so it's possible, but Biden's close enough to get down and full of Iowa left My real strange prediction that I may, I may end up, I may end up eating my words here. It's very likely, but I have a strong feeling that Andrew Yang is going to do much better than he's pulling. I was looking at most polls having three five percent. Um, I don't buy that one bit. He's been getting a lot of crowds in Iowa. The ground game is probably better than some candidates. Um, you know, I tend to think that he's going to be sitting around third, fourth place. I think he's going to be close to race, and you know. He is going after the younger, more anti-establishment voters who still separate Sanders. Because like, right now Sanders is doing pretty well in the polls. But, you know, if Yang wins, does that completely screw by um, burning over? I mean, if Yang were to, let's say, do, let's say Yang is in the top three, that completely disrupts the Democratic primary. Um, you see a power dynamic just overnight. Um, I think he also now might be considered frontrunner. Senator Bill Clinton came in, what, second or third in the council? I think he's still considered the comeback kid, you know, beating up expectations. I think the same thing could happen in this situation. If Yang were to well overperform some third, even fourth place in Iowa, who could completely do something. I'm not, you know, I was really head, I was really dead by that prediction. But given he's very low in the polls, I, you know, I think it's going to be better than expected. I just don't know if he's going to be able to break the top three, which would completely make him front runner status instantly, I think. Um, so really, I think there's really four people who I don't think Warren has a shot. Even though her ground game is decent, 
Her polling has been below by you. She's been polling consistently in fourth place. She kind of doesn't have anywhere to go. I, I don't think, unlike, I think Bernie and Yang definitely have ways to get more voters and kind of expand those poll numbers. And even Klobuchar does to a certain extent by going after Pete, Pete Buttigieg's voters. I don't really see a way from Warren. She's definitely not going to, after a couple of Kosopoles, I don't think they're getting a lot of Bernie voters. I don't see, she might get a, you know, I'm sure a nominal number of Pete voters will end up supporting her possibly in the caucus, but I don't think she has anywhere to go but down, sadly, if you are a Warren fan. Uh, and, you know, anything is possible in these caucuses, you know, quickly, no one expected the bombs to win the caucus in a way. I mean, that was a complete, that was, a, that was really a shock to a lot of people um, when, when he did that. So, I mean, I think um, anything's possible, but I would definitely be my favorite to win, you know, you know, not, I'm saying, you know, I really can't be certain because these things are just so volatile and everything is close to the break. But I think Bernie has the edge, followed by Buttigieg, followed by Biden, and then I think the out, then I think the fourth most likely, you know, I, this is going to sound crazy. I think the fourth candidate, candidate that is fourth most likely to win the caucus game, he has the potential for an upset, even though the numbers do not reflect it in the poll. You know, there's a chance he just from everything just kind of, Something doesn't, you know, if, if the polling is completely wrong in Iowa, then. But the polling would not have to be false. It would have to be completely wrong. It would have to be, it would have to be completely false. Um, so I'm just going to go up and say, I think Bernie wins it just because of looking at everything considered. It's the most likely outcome. Um, but, um, you know, if you're Peter Biden, you have a out in Biden, you know, he's really not doing well in you know, New Hampshire either. Um, so he really needs to make his Iowa shot. Uh, be on a good, to be on a track nomination for if you're Biden, this is really important. Um, and if you're Bernie Biden, this is really this is really important, um, especially. Um, so I think it's just going to be a very interesting long. I I, I don't think Iowa, you know, but I really believe that Iowa will not may not be the predictor it traditionally has been for Democrats. Um, I I'm just you know I think. Let's 
move on. Uh, so, or, so the next story, uh, thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, so you're saying right now that you think that there's a chance that uh, it sounds like you're saying that there's a chance that Iowa for the first time in 20 years may not predict the Democratic nominee for president. Uh, if that ends up being the case, do you think that Iowa is kind of losing its importance uh, in terms of uh, the Democratic primary overall? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, it, I think it depends on who wins. I think if Bernie or Biden win Iowa, it's going to likely one of them will likely be the nominee. I think if one of them wins it, but they are on track to be the nominee. Um, just because those are that's it. Um, because those are the campaigns that just if they get a, if either one of those campaigns gets a little bit of moment, probably over for everyone else. Even though know, everyone else gets a fight. Um, However, if it's like Pete Buttigieg or, or someone like that that doesn't really play well in the rest of the state, um, you know, I don't. Pete Buttigieg would do awful all of a sudden. Time is way worse than maybe Bernie's doing. Bernie's improved on how he's doing in the South by the um, compared to last time. But um, Pete Buttigieg is falling awful in South Carolina. He's not going to do well in Nevada either. Um, so really, if he wins Iowa, I still think he doesn't go anywhere. I mean, he might be, he might do better than expected in New Hampshire. Uh, but I don't think he will play well in the South. Um, he'd probably be, he'd probably re-enter front-runner status, but I don't think he would be the nominee. I don't, I don't, I don't think he has the math to pick there. But Bernie and Biden, I think it would, um, if, uh, if Bernie or Biden in Iowa, I would definitely put them at a higher stake to be the nominee. Um, but I don't think Iowa is necessarily losing its importance. It's still very important as it's first in the nation's status. Um, and it's still, you know, the media will always have to take for that. Um, you know, one thing, though, I was looking at this, um, I could be wrong on the exact number, but the point stands. Like, what, in the 2016 um, Democratic primary, there was about, well, it was like, what, 15 states or 20 states? But, okay, I'm, it's a number around 15 or 20 states that held caucus um, in one form or another now on the Democratic side. I believe in 2020, the, the number of states holding a traditional Democratic caucus is two, and North Dakota is technically holding a caucus, but it's really a party one primary. Um, so it's really only Iowa and Nevada are holding caucus. Um, that, that could either make them very important, or it could make it irrelevant because how caucuses go really, the kind of electric you get in caucuses is very different than primaries, and it could make it less predictive um, compared to now that four states are going back to having primaries. Um, and so I think that that could be something we start to see in this race, because, you know, there was a bunch of states um, that I think may vote differently this time based on having a primary and central cost. I could, you know, these are things that I won't be able to predict until I've seen a couple states vote, um, seeing how they like this case. But I think definitely in the future, Iowa may become less predictive, and Iowa may be forced to forego its first-in-the-nation status. Um, I think eventually something I'm thinking may happen in the next 10, 20 years is pretty much that memorandum will be held up in the DNC um, that, that Iowa needs to get rid of the caucuses because it is inherently harder to be able to participate. You know, if you have kids, if you have, if you have to work that night, um, you know, if you have any reason you cannot spend three or four hours on the site, um, mobility issues are both things. It is very hard for a lot of people to put caucuses. Um, that's why a lot of states are getting rid of their caucuses systems or, you know, or that of changing them and those sorts of things and that's actually making them primary. Um, you know, I think that could be something that in the future Iowa pretty much has to do because, you know, New Hampshire will always be the first primary. And so if Iowa has to go to a primary, they will no longer be first in the nation. 
Um, they, they will be moved to a random point in the calendar and they will become irrelevant. I mean, we just see Iowa go from one of the most important things about the state just being, you know, it, it's just as important as anything else. But, um, you know, I think it'd be a radical shift um, in how politics is done in most places. You know, it would really be, you know, the first time since the 70s when New Hampshire was actually the first. Um, and I think that's something that could, could likely happen. Um, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I haven't really heard anything about it, but I'm just starting to think, given the way the other states are behaving, eventually they'll have no choice. They may, they may wait it out for a very long time because they don't want to lose that first in the nation status. Um, but I, I definitely predict Nevada will get rid of their conferences at one point. Um, that'll probably happen pretty soon, and then I will be left alone, and then eventually they'll have to change. Um, and I don't know how I feel about it because, you know, the conferences, it's a unique thing, it's a, you know, a unique American thing. Um, especially the Democratic caucus is a unique thing of in itself, even compared to how Republicans do caucuses. Um, you know, I feel like we might be losing part of our identity of a party if we lose the other caucus, but it may be overall good for the Democrats of Iowa. It may be good, in, you know, at least on paper, but, you know, then they may, but they, you know, they all send all the candidates won't go there and such. So, you know, they may, that will be a decision, and I think in a couple, of, in a few cycles, the Democrats and Iowa will have to pay part now, uh, and one more question before we move into the news. Uh, I wanted to ask you this, like, as a personal opinion question. I know there's been a lot of people saying that uh, the Iowa caucuses should be moved in future elections, or the Iowa primary slash caucus, whatever they have, shouldn't be the first in the nation because the demographic there isn't uh, diverse enough. Um, some people have said that Florida should be the first uh, in the nation, uh, as somebody uh, who's a Democrat in uh, a rural state, what are your opinions on that? Well, in a, this depends on this, because I see both sides of this issue. It's an issue where I really do see both sides. Um, you know, I think Democrats have done things to remedy this, like after we have Iowa, we have the two very you know, white states. We have Nevada and South Carolina. So the Democratic electorate of those states is very, very, very um, and very diverse. And so I think, you know, that has been the Democrat's band-aid to that overall um, debate. And it has been effective, um, in my opinion. But, I, you know, I do wonder, like, should, you know, you know, because technically the way, you know, if you're thinking about this technically, New Hampshire, you know, one state law says they have to be the first signer. And Iowa now is one of the flash main states to win caucuses. And no state really was imagining a big state like Florida doing a caucus to be in it would be insanity. Um, it would be the most crazy thing we ever heard. So I really think we keep Iowa, um, we keep Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, possibly maybe we rotate Iowa and Nevada. Possibly it could be a, we could rotate the first box between Iowa and Nevada. That could possibly a way that could be done. Um, but definitely the first, the first two, the first, I mean, think it's the first, the first four states are pretty small things. Um, comparatively, and I, I could not imagine that like, Florida being the first state because campaigns. It would be very imagine someone like a small candidate, a, a you know a less known candidate like Andrew Yang trying to get noticed. You know, you have to spend a lot more money on media and get off the vote after Florida than you do than you do in Iowa, um, or even Nevada for that matter. Um, so I definitely think you know I think possibly switching Iowa and Nevada every other cycle could be something that could be effective. Um, in limiting that issue, I definitely don't want a big state to be the first state that is something I'm 100% against, simply because it takes more resources for candidates and would make it harder for small, um, for lesser known candidates. Um, and so I tend to be like, I, I understand that 
I understand the question. Um, but I think, but I really don't want the, a big thing being the first day would be the worst thing that could happen. It would, it would pretty much ensure that I, I mean, I think that if the first, I think it was the first day was Florida or California, you would have a bunch of candidates who I think out of, if you were like a smaller candidate, you would pretty much get those primaries. So you would get the first, you would get the first day. Um, and so, and I think that would be a big issue because they went to the resource to compete there. Um, and they would switch to me. Um, so I'm really in favor of making, it's a very, and the first date needs to be a false date. I just think that really, that really does, that is very important. It allows the candidates to do more intimate uh, conversations with voters and things like that. Um, in the early states where a lot of, where the momentum is gaining the first thing. I, I do kind of believe in that traditional model. Um, and so I think that's an important thing politically to have on both sides. And, you know, Republicans have less of this issue. This is less of an issue with the Republican Party. Um, so I doubt that they will be, um, they would be changing that in any way. We look at the Iowa Republican Congress for years to come. Um, that's the Iowa Democratic Caucus may end up changing. At least, you know, either it will become a primary and will be moved out of early cycle or it will trade with Nevada and turn them first. So I think those are two things that could happen in terms of if we try to if we try to either make it more accessible or make, make the early states more diverse. Um, but I don't think we have to do anything too radical. I think those, um, those are two things that would um, change things up that I think would um, also probably improve um, um, could improve the Democratic primary. Um, we'll see how this goes, especially. Um, you know, I, I do wonder, would, would this be different if Nevada was the first state? You know, would, you be in a, would, you, would you be in a whole different race? You know, I, it's hard to say. If, if that, you know, if that was actually it. I think we're going to be in a, you know, it's going to be, you know, these are things that will not be dealt with now. You know, the party would not going to do anything right now. You know, when Trump's in office, because ostensibly the Democrats are going to get Trump out. We're not going to try to do the center party reorganization. However, under the, whoever the next Democratic president is, I think some of these intra-party type things, especially with nomination processes, may, may be dealt with at some point. And I have this opinion that I'm just rambling on because I really don't have, I have some, I definitely have a strong opinion on it can't be a big state. But outside of that, I definitely hear both sides. If it should be Iowa, oh no, we should have more diversity. I think there's a, there's a lot of valid, valid arguments. Um, and, we, and I think if the, if the decision is made to evaluate um, some of these things internally in Iowa and the DNC as a whole, I think the whole party needs to be involved and it needs to be a long, and it needs to be a process that is maybe trial ran so things go badly, this can go back to where it was or something like that. But I, I definitely think the other conversations the party really isn't having right now because we're kind of just, you know, things are a mess right now in politics. But if things do smooth out a little bit, I think these, these will be, these, these, if things do that even a little bit, these will be conversations that are brought up. Uh, but you tend not to be having these conversations right now just because we're in the middle of an election season it's already happening. You tend to get these things um, after election. Let's you know, I, I definitely want the conversations to be had because I want all sides to feel like the discussion is there um, and that it's been had and that, the, and that we're having representatives that the party's representative of all views, of all different Democrats of all different areas and races and these sorts of things. Uh, all right, well then, uh, let's move on to uh, the stories. 
so first of all, probably the biggest story of the week uh, is impeachment. Uh, the uh, third impeachment trial in American history uh, has officially uh, started. Uh, it was sent to the Senate, uh, and uh, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, was sworn in. We talked about that last week, but the trials have started. Uh, Democrats and Republicans from both sides uh, have uh, have uh, made their defenses. They've started to make their defenses, and the trial is now ongoing. Um, it should also be noted that uh, Donald Trump uh, he has announced that his that Alan Dershowitz uh, and Larry Kudlow will be on his uh, defense team. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the impeachment trials? I mean. They're just using this for their own games, and it's all political theater from every side, and I really don't have anything nice to say about it. Um, other than Chief, Chief, Roberts, Chief Roberts is doing a good job, and he was being impartial in this. I mean, I will technically say that, yes, Trump is guilty um, of these things, but if I, if I, if I, was, in, if I was in the Democratic, if I was a Democratic member of Congress, and you told me what they were going to bring a piece on, I would have been like, don't bring it up on that, because this is stupid. Uh, you know, this is just was personal. And Trump can bring it right back on because, yes, Trump did this. And yes, technically, this is against the Constitution, these sorts of things. But also, the vice is a Trump. And there's a reason I'm not supporting him in the primary. <laughs> um, he is corrupt and he's not a good figure in the Democratic Party, especially now. Especially in the anti Senate era, both parties are lost pretty with the debate. Um, I think, you know, this is pretty much started because Trump, Trump wanted to go on bike. You know, yes, it is. It is not in good character to do what Trump asked the Ukrainian president to do. But it's also not good character for for the Democrats to say, yes, you definitely broke the law. Uh, you did you did something wrong, but I'm going. But he's done a million impeachable offenses. Well, before this, they're like, oh, you attacked one of our guys, one, one, you know, one of our fellows. Now we're going after the central chief. Um, you know, I, you know, I believe you you, you could have brought a million different. Not quite that many, but you could have brought in several more convincing, um, um, less partisan, hacky arguments, such as a volume, and I think that would have been a much more in-depth case that the Republicans would have had a lot harder time defending against. Um, you know, I still don't mind this. I, you know, as much as it feels cheap, I'm still glad Republicans have to go on the record and say, yes, I'm acquitting a man who's guilty because I believe more in party um, than, um, and in principle, you know, think about it. Nixon resigned so we get the humiliation of, of of impeachment. He's like, I've never resigned. Um, you know, this feels like another Clinton esque thing, where it's just, yeah, the law was technically broken. But I, this is a little worse, given it does involve foreign power, but it still feels like there's other things you could have impeached on if you wanted to get this day. You're just this cheap and partisan and just trying to rile up. Something. And I, it's like, why are you doing this now in an election year? I don't understand why Democrats are doing it now, especially since you're targeting it. Um, the DNC, you know, the Democrats, the DNC is just one of the stupidest organizations that ever existed because it's, you know, there's a, the reason I'm really, you know, one of the reasons I'm for Bernie Sanders is that, you know, on top of whatever politics like this, is that I truly believe the president, the DNC is going to get more. If he does nothing else, I truly hope that's it. Um, and the president will be able to clean up the DNC inside out. Um, you know, and that's one thing I wish Trump had done. You know, as much as I don't agree with him on policy, 
it's still in corporate clowns, but it's the RNC. And, you know, it's going to be corporate clowns and both parties from the parties. And if Bernie somehow manages to become president, I, I have, I will be very angry if the current powers in the DNC stay in power. Because I think, I mean, both of the party machines are just absolutely, they need to be power washed inside and out. Um, and I think that's very clear given this impeachment trial where, yes, if I was a Democratic candidate, chances are I'd be voting guilty. Even though I would have brought different charges against the president, because um, I believe this largely happened. Um, but I would vote guilty because he is guilty. You know, same way, in the Clinton era, as much as it was hacking, I might have had to vote for impeachment anyway, because, yes, technically there was obstruction of justice. And so part of me looks at the technicality and says, yes, this is valid, but there were other things to go after. Um, but I really try to be, you know, this is a, you know, because, you know, some people say it doesn't matter if it's political, which is, you know, impeachment is inherently political, some people argue. And then, which to me, why did you use this? Again, it's just the Democrats take the weakest spot. It's a legit case, but it's very weak. So we can um, And so I think, I think we're, you know, we cannot, you know, definitely, I think this was a ploy. I, you know, I, the, the Republicans can use this to a great advantage. They're, they're going to make, I, in my opinion, this is going to be, they're, they're going to try to put Joe Biden on file, but the, and the Republicans are much more effective. Um, you know, if they make it look like it's Joe Biden on file and not Donald Trump, hey, Joe Biden might be done in the Democratic primary. Um, I do think that that has implications on the primary, as well as it takes Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders off the campaign trail. Um, I do think that helps. That hurts Warren more than it hurts Bernie. Mainly because Bernie has a long list of surrogates that are very well liked and also able to get the crowds almost as well as the fans. You know, on Iowa, they just helped a rally with Mike Brewer and Alexander Cortez. You know, that went very well. I, you know, I, I don't think he, I think he, his surrogates can do the, can do the groundwork for him along with the volunteers. But Warren, you know, I think she needed to be out there a little bit more. She appreciates that she's bagging a little bit the polls. She needed to be out there. This is going to hurt her campaign. Um, so, you know, you wonder what kind of, um, if, if this has long-term implications on the Democratic primary. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of this in the largest way possible. You know, it's a big mask. You know, this should, if they were going to do this, there was enough evidence in, like, 2017 they could have impeached the nominee and stuff. And if they wanted to do impeachment, that's the way it should have been done. Um, they should not have waited until there was a personal attack against one of the uh, power Democrats. I just think that just make it petty and make it much harder to make the case to the average voter who isn't a hardcore, um, like, and I'm not going to say left-leaning because there's people, you know, there's people that lean for the left at all. Seriously, it's like there's just a political set done by the Democratic establishment that's for petty reasons. Um, but this is going to come out, I think largely a wash because he, you know, and I think this will come out largely a wash. The interesting thing is, um, I'm actually in a more microcosm way. In the state of Kansas, you know, Kansas is a traditionally very Republican state, but Trump is not popular. He's actually underwater in a pool rating. Um, and what I find it fascinating is both the senators and Senate made it clear that they are going to vote against the article, which I find very interesting given that Kansas is a state, is a state also like Susan Collins and Maine, where the president is not popular, even though there's Republican senators representing a state. Um, well, it, it would be it would be comprehensible that one of them would vote against um, or would vote for the impeachment. 
some talk as to whether Kirsten Cinema from Arizona might vote across party lines. Uh, do you think that could... I haven't heard... That wouldn't shock me either. I mean, that state is less like West Virginia. She doesn't have as much reason to, but I would understand why to see. But I mean, imagine if we lose two Democratic senators. Uh, I mean, the Democrat, I mean, I'm not shocked over well because, I mean, that they're just playing... What, they're just playing politics. Dude, this is all game. And they're just playing, well, I've got to get reelected at some point. I think I have to do this to get reelected, which is probably true in Maine's case. I don't know if it's true in Senate's case. Do you think it's more likely to harm or help the Democrats? The impeachment. As an overall thing? Yes. I think it's the Biden phenomenon. This is going to be used against somebody in one place. I mean, Trump is a, you got to give Trump, he's a, he's a very, he knows how to do some very interesting things, but he's a very good campaigner in a very interesting way. Um, and he's been very good against Hillary. I think against Biden, same thing, he's able to destroy him. Um, especially with the, he's got a bunch of ammunition now. Um, you know, I think if it's Sanders, I don't think it has that much of an impact. But I think it's not, I really think it's not that he's I think it's a factor. I just really think, I think anyone else, I think Bernie especially, because he doesn't, if he really will just talk about the issues on stuff, he won't really, he won't do the same thing that I think other Democrats might do. Or Yang, I think Bernie or Yang wouldn't be affected by this at all in a general election. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, I think it gives people some interesting context. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I think, you know, if you make me say it helps Trump slightly, if I had to just give an overall, um, an overall reading of it, but in reality, I think it's still updated, but I think really the only candidate really helps Trump against the fight. Um, all right. So why don't we move on to the next topic yet? So, uh, Former uh, 2020 presidential candidate Marianne Williamson has announced her endorsement. She will be endorsing 
uh, Andrew Yang for the Democratic nomination for the presidency. Uh, Williamson was previously a guest on our show. Uh, she gained uh, national attention after her performance in the first debate. Uh, and she uh, is uh, now uh, continuing to gain. And now she's, uh, she says that she believes that Andrew Yang is the best person for the job. Uh, what are your thoughts, Jack, on Marianne Williamson announcing her endorsement of Andrew Yang? I mean, given that she have a full, all that highly, I don't think it has much of a material impact. However, I do think that this is kind of a larger signal that Yang is sort of making some ground in unfinished political. And I think that's why I'm saying that this can't be up a denial. But I think he's, he's getting ground with the polls may not be picking it up. Um, you know, uh, you know, I think, you know, I, you know, she's not, but she's definitely not a cost politician. She was going to endorse whoever she liked. She wasn't going to think, oh, you know, I've got to endorse this person, this person, someone else. She wasn't going to do that game. But I do think he, I think the point for one thing that he is gaining some momentum among some unsocial political circles. And the other, you know, he might have ended up having a decent job, um, at doing well in the primary. Um, at least, uh, at least compared to the Yeah, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, sorry, I think you broke up there. But anyway, sorry, continue. to the next uh, issue? Yeah, I think I largely said what I wanted to say. So, uh, the next story is uh, involving uh, Marie Yovanovitch. Uh, Marie uh, Yovanovitch was the uh, uh, was the former United States ambassador to the Ukraine. Uh, she uh, a um, uh, a Post by Donald Trump, or a leaked um, memo by Donald Trump uh, showed that Donald Trump was eager to get her uh, out uh, of office and get her out of the impeachment inquiry. Um, Many uh, Democratic politicians are now attacking Trump for this. What are your thoughts? I, I literally, I have not been keeping up that much with, um, side of politics this week, so I'm not going to be able to give much of an informed opinion. <laughs> um, I just think, I'm trying to think here, I'm just saying anything, but I'm only going to say that I'm largely 
I heard about it vaguely, but I've been still caught up with a few other things this week that I really haven't had the time to keep up with it closely. Okay. Uh, well, why don't we move on to the next story then? So the next story, uh, let's go across the pond to Brexit. So, uh, uh, it is official. Brexit has officially, after three and a half years of negotiating and planning, become a law in the United Kingdom. Um, now, uh, the European Union still needs to sign off on the New Deal, but the biggest hurdles have been crossed. Uh, as uh, initially, the House of Lords uh, voted against Brexit and tried to add five new amendments. However, uh, after Parliament overwhelmingly uh, rejected those amendments, uh, uh, the Lords conceded and eventually passed the deal as it was. Uh, the Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth, has announced that she will uh, indeed back uh, Boris Johnson's Brexit plan, uh, which means that it just needs to be signed off on at the EU, uh, which would mean that England is now set to leave the EU on January 31st. Jack, what are your thoughts on Brexit becoming law? Well, I think this was, you know, ever since the vote passed in 2016, I think this was something that we knew was coming one day or another. Um, that really there was no way turning back from that without major backlash. Um, you know, the Tory government did do what they promised. You know, they did promise Brexit was going to get done, and guess what? They did it. Um, I think this is likely going to have bad long-term implications um, for the United Kingdom, and I think this will likely, this may shake up the world economy, um, and it, it, it may cause some issues. Um, I could be wrong, and maybe this will work great for them, which in that case is good. Um, you know, I know some people in Europe, and then it doesn't do not happen to this, because they're really, now the EU is seen you know, somewhat fragile, um, and it's really taken a lot of work to keep together. Uh, and I think that, you know, and I think now this could end up causing, um, you know, I think, you know, maybe this will work great, but I really think that this is going to be long-term economic um, instability for Britain, at least in the, you know, at least in the, you know, five, ten-year term. And then possibly, you know, it may stable out and it may actually, they may actually do better because of it. You know, the one issue that I'm actually really nervous about, besides the economic stuff, I think is really hard to predict. Um, I'm not an expert in that kind of thing, but I definitely think it's probably going to stabilize some things. The real thing I'm nervous about is the Irish border. Um, I haven't really seen what the provision is for the Ireland North Ireland border um, in a Brexit deal. Because um, if they, if, I, if a hard sense, if they could have put a hard sense on that border, oh, that is not going to be pretty. Um, that will cause a lot of problems. Um, and so I think this may long term lead to a United Ireland. I definitely think that it's a mess. Now is really in the picture. Um, all right, so let's move on to the next story. So the next story is involving uh, the upcoming State of the Union of Dress. Uh, Donald, uh, right now, uh, Democrats have just announced who will deliver the response, the Democratic response, to Donald Trump's State of the Union. And that person will be none other than Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. It was announced uh, yesterday that Whitmer will be the Democrats' uh, choice to deliver the response to the State of the Union. Jack, what are your thoughts on Gretchen Whitmer delivering 
The Democrats' response to the State of the Union. I mean, this is a pretty long-standing tradition of governors usually being um, a popular choice. Um, I know Bill Clinton gave the response at one point in the 80s, I think, to Reagan's State of the Union. I'm going to state, um, I think, state this year gave a response to one of Trump's earlier on, I think 2017 or something, I think that sounds right. Um, you know, stuff like that. You know, we've seen governors before. I think she is someone who is acceptable to all parts of the party. You know, she may be a little more centrist than I would necessarily like, but she's, you know, a good Democrat. She's, you know, she's doing good by the people of Michigan. I think she's a solid choice. It's smart maybe to have a smooth state um, governor do it. I think that's also part of the logic. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a, it's a largely inoffensive choice that really doesn't offend anyone in the Democratic Party. And I think it will... She will, she will probably do very, she'll probably do very well. Um, I think she's, a, I think a, a female choice both of them are going to take overall. I think it's, a, I think it's, a, it's an inoffensive choice. You know, it's not a brash choice. It's like someone who is new, but also who is, you know, kind of accessible. Basically, it's like a file. Um, all right. Well, let's, um, move on to the next story. So the next story uh, is involving a recent New York Times endorsement. Uh, this endorsement is for uh, is from the New York Times. Uh, they announced in a shocking decision uh, that they will endorse not one but two candidates for the presidency, saying they want to embrace quote the radical and the realist. Uh, because of this, the New York Times has said that they will endorse two women. Uh, the first one being. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, who they called the, quote, radical candidate. The second one is uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, who they consider to be the realist candidate. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on uh, on uh, this uh, happening? What are your thoughts on, um, uh, on New York Times uh, making this endorsement? You know, I think, you know, I'm not even going to touch the candidates themselves because I think the idea of endorsing two candidates for a race where you can only vote for one is not good. The only way I could really put it, put it, put it make sense is maybe because we released the top five we had ranked them. Um, given that, you know, Kansas will actually be having a race choice primary, um, they could have said, well, this is our race choice if we had a range choice now. Um, that would have been something that I thought would have been kind of Maybe it would have been interesting, it would have been a change on the traditional newspaper endorsement. This makes no sense. You can't just do a dual endorsement. Um, I'm not even going to, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to say largely that I think the candidates were chosen strategically, not necessarily maybe the number of the best, because who that is. I think those were two candidates that were trying to appeal to their readers. I think that was largely done to appeal to their readership um, and those sorts of things. And I, I just think it was, I, I, I just, I'm annoyed by it. I think it's, you know, regardless of who they have chosen, I would have been like, hey, if they just endorsed anybody. I mean, I really don't think the New York Times endorsement is going to sway any voters. Um, you know, most younger Democratic voters don't read the Times, and the older ones, you know, are probably already sent up to the voting board, but those have the minuscule impact. On the grounds to the endorsement, I'm not really thinking of it. If anything, I just thought, you know, um, you know, if they wanted to take, if they wanted to take themselves seriously, they should have done that. 
All right, so uh, let's move to Virginia, where there's a controversial battle going on over the state's gun control laws. Uh, uh, there was recently a uh, a gun control a march for a pro Second Amendment march, uh, in spite of previous uh, rumors that there could be uh, white supremacists or violence. Uh, the pe- the uh, rally ended up being mainly peaceful. Um, in spite of this, uh, the Virginia State Senate uh, did recently pass a new gun control measure in the state uh, of Virginia. Um, Virgi- uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the Virginia House of Delegates uh, has also proposed a controversial new measure called known House bill known as House Bill uh, 1627, introduced by Delegate Jeffrey Bourne. Um, and this uh, piece of legislation, uh, quote, provides that certain crimes relating to threats and harassments uh, may be uh, prosecuted uh, in the city of Richmond if the victim is the governor, governor-elect, uh, Lieutenant Governor, uh, Lieutenant Governor-elect, Attorney General, or Attorney General-elect, a member or employee of the General Assembly, uh, a Justice of the Supreme Court of Virginia, or a Justice of the Virginia Court of Appeals. Uh, many people have criticized this, uh, saying uh, that they believe, uh, be- uh, saying that they believe that this is an infringement of the Second Amendment, while or, or, or of the First Amendment. I apologize. Uh, while others uh, have argued that this is necessary to uh, protect the safety uh, of politicians in the state. What are your thoughts on this controversy? I have only kind of read the outlines of it, and I think this is, you know, I think this is a delicate, uh, personal, the first and second, but I don't know if it's very dumb. Um, and I think this is where you start, and I think this is where the decisions that you made very, very tough decisions that you made by politicians and by people. Um, what sort of compromises, wherever they're starting from, can be made? You know, I, should, I think to myself is very moderate on this issue. I don't really take a hard, you know, I see both hard line stances and ridiculous. Um, the, hard, the hard line anti-gun control people are the crazy community, ban gun people. I mean, those are both ludicrous positions that have no position in, um, that have no place in American discourse and fundamentally make no sense in modern America, both for different reasons. Um, I think you need to I, I, the Virginia bill, you know, the way I'm understanding it is it's just about having guns in state buildings. Hello? Yes, yes. Is the Virginia bill just about having guns in state buildings? Uh, hold on, let me pull it up. Well, part of it said that there was like you had to wait thirty days, uh, for. Here, here's what it says. Um, so uh, here's what it entails. Uh, according, and this is coming from uh, uh, Ten News, NBC Ten News, which is a local, uh, a, a local uh, station in uh, in West Virginia. Or sorry, in Virginia, not West Virginia, Virginia. Uh, from the Richmond area, uh, and it here's what it entails. Uh, quote, a red flag law which takes guns away from people being uh, uh, believed to be a risk to, uh, to themselves or others. The Senate passed a version earlier this week. 
universal background checks, which include private sales, uh, letting localities ban guns in public spaces, uh, increasing uh, the penalties uh, for guns, uh, leaving uh, unsecured uh, around people. Uh, anyone under a, a protective order can't have a gun. Uh, this had Republican support. Uh, people uh, have uh, to report lost or stolen guns within 24 hours, a uh, bill that also had support. I think these are all measures that, you know, I, I believe, you know, none of these measures, with the with maybe the exception of the one that's with ban guns, and which would allow municipalities to ban guns in public spaces, none of these necessarily, none of these really take the guns away from law-abiding citizens. You know, because the red flag law gets some, gets some people annoyed. But I think this is, that's one I have a hard opinion on. It, it, but, like, the rest of them, I'm like, yeah, universal background checks and those sorts of things. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those sorts of things are very easy for me to support. Is that red flag laws are one of the few where I still have a hard opinion on. Um, it, for me, makes sense because like, there are people who should not be having it, and it's you know, and I think it's, we need to be um, very careful. We, you know, we have more gun death attention than really anywhere else, um, and we really need to be more conscious about that. Um, because really, we. Um, by doing that, and I, I just think, um, I think definitely 
we need to look at Virginia, um, since, you know, I think they have a Democratic trifecta now, so it'll be passed by the governor, or it has nothing something or it will be. Um, and we'll see how these laws play out um, as a whole, and if they are effective, or if they would roll on other states. Um, so I think most of these are, tend to be things that you can get conservative agreement on. Um, I, cause I think, um, especially stuff like, um, uh, like, um, like lock-up laws and those sorts of things. Um, I think these are things that we need to look at very hardly. Even if um, we can't get all of them adopted in every state, I think even some of them in most states would do um, a lot of good. Um, just as a general rule, making sure that um, things are safer. To make things safer, as, a, as an overall rule, I think um, we will be on our way to having a better society. And you know, it's one of these issues that I have a lot of issues with because I really sympathize with them. I really sympathize with the, with the, uh, with the um, I definitely see myself more on the pro-Second Amendment side, but I really see myself as, you, you know, these are things you regulate. Um, similar to First Amendment, you can't go yell fire in a crowd of theater. Um, you know, you can't say whatever you want, whenever you want, you know, there are restrictions on this thing, or whatever it is you do, it makes sense. Um, and I think we just need to protect the, protecting the rights of citizens, you know, the Constitution says, you know, Um, and 
me to, um, if they feel well in Virginia and they don't cause, and they don't breach, and we, in practice, you find that they don't really breach the second amendment, I'm all for, um, but I'd like to think if, um, that like, this may end up in front of the Supreme Court again. Um, if they think this goes too far, and I think that looks like precedent, if the Supreme Court hypothetically would rule that these, um, that these, that these cases, that these laws and, and Virginia are non-constitutional, then I think you see a lacking of gun laws across the country, and that will be a trend that continues for a while. Um, if that were to happen, but I'm not necessarily sure that would, um, even if, even if uh, somewhat a case of that idea did get to the court. Uh, all right, and let's move on to the uh, last story. Uh, the last story is involving uh, uh, Hawaii Congresswoman and 2020 Democratic candidate for president, Tulsa Gabbard. Uh, Gabbard has announced, or, or wait, there's actually two more stories, but the first one is uh, about uh, Hawaii Congresswoman and 2020 presidential Democratic candidate, Tulsi Gabbard. This week, she announced that she will uh, file a $50 million lawsuit against former Secretary of State and 2016 Democratic nominee for president, Hillary Clinton. Uh, Gabbard cites uh, a podcast uh, in which Clinton uh, called uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, quote, the favorite of the Russians, unquote, and a Russian uh, asset. Uh, she's now uh, suing for defamation uh, and has said that she will uh, attempt uh, fit to sue her for $50 million. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's... I mean, I largely agree with her. Doing Clinton sits up without any backing and just pretty much makes stuff up because, you know, I think she still... I think Clinton is very bitter that Tulsa Gabbard's endorsed Sanders in 2015. I think that was a fact. She's very bitter about those sorts of things. And she refuses to take her own responsibility for losing the general election. She's almost nearly her own, almost her own fault. She ran for the pain, just in the general. And then the primary, too. So, um, so I really think she's, you know, she's, Gabbard is doing the correct thing. This is a way to get attention. Um, even though she will, the people are saying, I'm likely not. For her favor, even that libel is incredibly hard to prove in the United States, and it's a good thing, but also it means that the, the case will not that go forward, but it's still a good way to bring attention to what's said, um, and, and, and kind of go back and kind of bat against the, um, the lies that person said about her. So I think it's smart for her to do what she was doing, but... Um... All right, well, let's move on to the last story. I promise this one is the last story. Sorry about that. Well, okay. <laughs> well this one is uh, surrounding uh, Bernie Sanders uh, and Joe Biden, a current uh, hustle or a current um, or a current feud uh, that uh, they've been having. Uh, uh, what happened was... Uh, Bernie Sanders put out a video um, uh, um, uh, in which uh, which claimed that Joe Biden uh, was attacking uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, Sanders uh, said uh, he he attacked Bernie Sanders. 
uh, he attacked Joe Biden uh, and played a video uh, that uh, in which uh, which he claimed showed uh, Biden uh, trying to uh, make uh, or trying to advocate for cuts to social security. Um, uh, Sanders also uh, apologized uh, for saying that uh, Joe Biden uh, was a corrupt politician, um, though he did not officially apologize uh, for the uh, for the uh, for posting uh, a video. What are your thoughts on uh, the feud between Biden and Sanders? I mean, I think Sanders is a big regret. Go back and look at joining us uh jack you want to tell people uh, new to the podcast where you can be found uh, you can find me on twitter Thank you for coming on. No problem. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye.
You're listening to Politics Weekly. To uh, be big underdogs uh, in the race uh, for the uh, the presidency. One of them is uh, joining me today. We can survive all those systems. What's going to happen if you legalize it completely? Politics Weekly is a podcast on politics, news, and principles. I've got more experience in government than the president of the United States. I've got more years of executive experience than the vice president. And I have more military experience than anybody who's arrived behind that desk since George H.W. Bush. He is the biggest underdog in the race. At age 37, he's also one of the youngest candidates for president. But who is Pete Buttigieg, the South Bend, Indiana mayor who's defying all expectations and hoping to be the next president of the United States? The candidates. Donald Trump has got to be defeated, and I intend to do everything that I can with every other progressive in America, making sure that that happens. Their stories. We got a real opportunity to build something. And their fight for the White House. Keep America great! Exclamation point. Keep America great. This is Presidential Profile 2020. At that inflection moment, where were you? This is that moment. It's our job to remind the American people that we're looking out for them. So all of you, showing the country how you do this. The special interests and the powerful have such an outsized influence and outcome to restore our democracy. Peter Paul Montgomery Buttigieg was born on January 19th. 1982 in South Bend, Indiana, the only child of Jennifer and Joseph. Joseph, who was an immigrant from Malta, studied to be a Catholic priest before relocating to America where he scored a job at the University of Norte Dame as a professor. Buttigieg was valedictorian of his class at St. Joseph High School in the year 2000. Buttigieg won the JFK Profiles and Courage Award for an essay written about Vermont Congressman Bernie Sanders. Buttigieg attended Harvard, and upon graduating in 2005, went on to work for former Defense Secretary and former Republican Maine Senator William Cohen. After temporary working on Jill Long Thompson's losing campaign for the House of Representatives in 2002, he also became an NBC affiliate. He would later work for her unsuccessful campaign for governor of Indiana in 2008. He also worked for John Kerry's 2004 campaign before going to fight in the Iraq War. ...for making sure that a vehicle that, that I was driving got to where it was going safely. And you're warned that, uh, for example, a magnetic IED could be placed on your vehicle. And once it sounded to me as though somebody had attached something to the vehicle I was driving. He became a naval intelligence officer before running for state treasurer of Indiana in 2010. He won the Democratic nomination and faced off against incumbent Republican state treasurer Richard Murdoch. Buttigieg lost by a blowout, only receiving 37% of the vote compared to Murdoch's 62%. In 2011, Buttigieg announced his candidacy for mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He faced off against Republican Norris W. Curry, Jr. and Libertarian Patrick M. Farrell. 
Buttigieg won with 74% of the vote, compared to Curry's 19% and Farrell's 7%. To this day, he is the youngest current mayor of a major city in America. As mayor he demoted South Bend Police Chief Daryl after it was discovered he recorded phone calls in an unethical way. However, he was later reinstated by Buttigieg, a decision he claims to deeply regret. In 2013, GovFresh.com had him and independent NYC Mayor Michael Bloomberg tied as Mayor of the Year. Buttigieg introduced the Vacant and Abandoned Properties Initiative to rebuild or destroy old property in South Bend. He was deployed in Afghanistan in 2014 and served as a lieutenant in the Navy Reserve. After arriving back home, Buttigieg announced he'd in for re-election. During the race, Buttigieg came out as a homosexual. He defeated Republican Kelly Jones with 80% of the vote. Jones received 21% of the vote. In 2017, Buttigieg ran to be chairman of the Democratic National Committee, though he lost to former Labor Secretary Tom Paris. In 2018, he married his longtime boyfriend Chasen. In December, he announced he wouldn't seek a third term. This sparked speculation he'd run for governor of Indiana in 2020, challenging incumbent Republican Governor Eric Holcomb. However, Buttigieg had other plans in mind. I, I recognize the audacity <laughs> of doing this as a Midwestern millennial mayor. In early 2019, Buttigieg announced his candidacy for President of the United States. His campaign is mainly centered around support for universal health care, LGBT rights and combating climate change which he deems a national emergency. If elected, he'd be America's first openly gay president, as well as the youngest president ever elected at just 37 years of age. We live in a moment that compels us each to act. Initially, Buttigieg was only polling around 1% when his exploration committee for president began, but he has since gained more ground, coming in third behind former Vice President and former Delaware Senator Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, whom Buttigieg won an award for writing an essay about. Now, he hopes to be America's 46th president. It is time to walk away from the politics of the past and towards something totally different. So that's why I'm here today. For more Political Profiles 2020, keep listening for Politics Weekly. In addition to that, and that is pharmaceuticals. The president literally went on TV, on Fox, and said that people's heads would spin when they see how much he would bring down pharmaceutical prices. She was elected by an overwhelming margin at a time when Republicans held dominance over her state's politics in the 2000s. She was re-elected by a landslide in a state Donald Trump nearly won, who is Amy Klobuchar, the Minnesota senator hoping to be America's first woman president. The candidates keep America great. Their story. Yeah, you're always when you're young, you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future. But I'm interested in what you can bring to the present. And their fight for the White House. I have the most progressive record of anybody running. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. Presidential Profiles 2020. How we could actually make this government work, not just for a thin slice at the top, but make it work for everyone else. I think that 
Sure, if people want to speculate, speculate about running mates, I encourage that because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate as vice president. Amy Jean Klobuchar was born in Plymouth, Minnesota on May 25, 1960. Her mother Rose was a teacher, whilst her father Jim is an author. When she and her siblings were children, their parents divorced. Klobuchar's relationship with her father never improved until he cured his alcoholism in the 1990s. After graduating high school, Klobuchar attended Yale University and interned for former U.S. Vice President and former Minnesota Senator Walter Mondale. A thesis she wrote in her senior year surrounded former U.S. Vice President and former Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey. After graduating, she pursued a career as a lawyer. In 1993, she married University of Baltimore professor John Bessler. She has one daughter with him. After the birth of her daughter, Abigail, Klobuchar was forced to leave the hospital within 24 hours. Things got worse when Abigail Klobuchar developed a condition which gave her the inability to swallow. The incident led to Klobuchar herself going to the Minnesota State Legislature advocating for hospitals to give new mothers a 48-hour stay. The bill passed in the legislature, and President Bill Clinton made it federal law. Klobuchar's first political attempt came in 1994 when she ran for county attorney of Hennepin County but dropped out after the incumbent, Michael Freeman won the Democratic Farmer-Labor Party line. In 1998, she ran again for the position and won. A Minnesota publication called her Lawyer of the Year in 2002. She was re-elected that year. For seven years, Amy Klobuchar has led the largest prosecutor's office in Minnesota. She's earned a reputation as tough and fair. I've approached my job as chief prosecutor with a simple idea that I do my job without fear or favor. Isn't that what they should be doing in Washington? In 2006, Klobuchar finally got her big break when incumbent Democratic Minnesota's U.S. Senator Mark Dayton announced retirement after just one term due to him being unhappy with the then state of Washington. Klobuchar announced her candidacy, being challenged by just one minor Democrat in the primary whom she defeated with over 92% of the vote. She faced Republican Congressman Mark Kennedy in the general election. The race was initially considered competitive, as Minnesota not only had a Republican governor at the time, but the only senator was a Republican and the Minnesota state legislature was also controlled by Republicans. In spite of this, Klobuchar beat Kennedy by a 58-38% to 38 margin. I come to the Senate floor today to speak about the loss of one of Minnesota's own, and that's Prince. Klobuchar enjoyed high approval ratings with polls in 2009 indicating 58% of Minnesota's residents approved of the job she was doing as senator, while only 36% disapproved. Polls in 2010 indicated 67% of Minnesota residents liked the job she did. Klobuchar gained a reputation as a moderate senator who worked across the aisle. In 2012, she won re-election by a 65-32% margin over Republican state lawmaker Kurt Bills. In 2016, she endorsed former U.S. Secretary of State, former New York Senator and former U.S. First Lady Hillary Clinton for president in 2016. Rumors emerged that Klobuchar could be Clinton's pick for U.S. Attorney General should she win the presidency. However, Clinton lost to Republican New York businessman Donald Trump.
Klobuchar called for an independent investigation into potential Russian collusion during the 2016 presidential election. In 2017, the Star Tribune reported Klobuchar held a 72% approval rating. In 2018, she sought re-election again, facing Republican state lawmaker Jim Neuberger. Klobuchar beat Neuberger by a 60-36% to margin. In 2019, Klobuchar came under fire for a report from BuzzFeed that claimed Klobuchar's employees faced abusive conditions. In spite of this, she made a huge announcement. To announce my candidacy for President of the United States. Now, she hopes to be America's 46th president and the first woman president. For more Presidential Profiles 2020, keep it right here on Politics Weekly. This is about Trump. He is one of President Donald Trump's few Republican challenges during the 2020 election. His election made headlines in 2010. He was considered one of the most controversial members of Congress at one point. He was once a supporter of Trump in 2016, but has since turned against him. Who is Joe Walsh? the former Illinois congressman seeking the Republican nomination for the presidency. The candidates keep America great. Their story. Yeah, you're always, when you're young, you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future. But I'm interested in what you can bring to the present. And their fight for the White House. I'm the most progressive record of anybody running. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. Presidential Profiles 2020. How we could actually make this government work, not just for a thin slice at the top, but make it work for everyone else. I think that, sure, if people want to specula speculate about running mates, I encourage that, because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate as vice president. William Joseph Walsh was born on the 27th of December, 1961 in North Barrington, Illinois to Susan and Charles. The sibling of five, Walsh's father was a mortgage banker. In the 1980s, Walsh considered a career in acting and took on many roles in theater. However, he later became a social worker, trying to reform the lives of young people. He taught history at Oakton Community College and the Hebrew Theological College. He married Laura Walsh in 1987. In the 1990s, Walsh held multiple successful fundraisers for school choice. He raised $1 million for an organization helping children in Nigeria suffering from poverty. He worked for many libertarian think tank organizations such as the Milton and Rose Friedman Foundation and the Heartland Institute. In 1996, he made his first political run for the U.S. House of Representatives, challenging Democratic incumbent Sidney R. Yates. Walsh campaigned riding around on a bicycle. Yates was 87 when he ran for re-election that year while Walsh was only 34. To gain more widespread attention, Walsh performed what were seen by many as outrageous students. 
He paid Yates' apartment doorman $1,000 to throw him a birthday party which featured giving Yates a cake with 287 birthday candles on top. Many accused Walsh of playing the age card, which he denied. To attempt a long-shot win, Walsh took more liberal stances on major issues, arguing for abortion rights and gun control. In spite of this, President Bill Clinton's re-election win that year benefited Yates, who defeated Walsh by a 63-37% margin. Walsh's second shot at a political run came in 1998, when he ran against Democrat Jeffrey Schoenberg. As Walsh's campaign revolved around public school funding, he ran a school bus up and down lanes. Schoenberg defeating Walsh by a 62-38% margin. Walsh disappeared from the political scene for many years. He divorced his wife in 2002. He married Helena Miller, who would go on to become a member of the Illinois State Legislature. In 2010, however, he put his hat in the ring once more, announcing another run for U.S. House of Representatives, this time targeting Illinois 8th Congressional District which was considered a right-leaning district until Democrat Melissa Bean won in 2004. Walsh ran to face Bean that year. Walsh ran on a more conservative platform, leading to an endorsement from many Tea Party movement supporters, helping him to secure the nomination. After doing so, he faced Bean in the general election. The race became hotly contested leading up to the end. The Republican National Committee saw little opportunity for Walsh to win, and didn't spend any money in this district. In spite of this, Walsh beat Bean by less than a point. In the House he supported Zionist ideas, and took a hard-line stance against abortion. In 2012, a redistricting led to Walsh suing over allegations that the districts were drawn to be too biased against Republican and Hispanic voters. He alleged that the newly drawn 8th district was too heavily Democratic. Walsh argued he'd run in the 14th district, challenging incumbent Republican Randy Hultgren if the issue wasn't resolved. Many conservative groups endorsed Walsh, until he came under fire for unpaid child support bills. Following this, many groups withdrew their endorsement of him. Walsh decided to continue running in the 8th District, facing former Assistant Secretary of the VA Tammy Duckworth. Ultimately, Duckworth beat Walsh by a 55-44% margin. Following this, Walsh started his own radio show for many years. In 2015, Walsh announced that if former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were to win the presidency, he'd run for president in 2020. In 2016, he endorsed Republican businessman Donald Trump's campaign for the presidency. In 2018, Walsh announced he had withdrawn his support for Trump after Trump said he believed the Russian Intelligence Committee over his own appointed Intelligence Committee members. In summer of 2019, Walsh announced he would challenge Trump on the Republican line. Now, he hopes to be America's 46th president. For more Presidential Profiles 2020, keep it right here on Politics Weekly.
And so I called him, the kind of man he was, I called him on Wednesday and said, Senator Boggs, I'm not feeling well. I don't feel well at all, so I'm not going to be there for Returns Day. And there was silence, and he said, Joe, he said, I was proud to run every time I won, and I'd be proud to run, ride with you even though I lost. That's how politics used to be in my state. He is the front runner in the 2020 Democratic field. He's spent 40 years in the political game and spent eight years as vice president of the United States. Now, he hopes to be America's commander in chief. This is Joe Biden, and this is his story. The candidates keep America great. Their story. Yeah, you're always, when you're young, you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future. But I'm interested in what you can bring to the present. And their fight for the White House. I have the most progressive record of anybody running. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. Presidential Profiles 2020. How we could actually make this government work, not just for a thin slice at the top, but make it work for everyone else. I think that, sure, if people want to speculate, speculate about running mates, I encourage that, because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate as vice president. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was born on November 20, 1942 in Scranton, Pennsylvania in St. Mary's Hospital to Catherine Eugenia and Joseph Sr. He is the oldest of his four siblings, and is of Irish descent on his mother's side while his father is of English, French and Irish descent. He was raised in a Catholic household most of his life, and his parents were blue-collar workers from Baltimore, Maryland. Biden's great-grandfather, Edward Francis Blewett was member of the Pennsylvania State Senate. Biden's father has amassed a large quantity of wealth early in life, but suffered finically following the birth of his first son. Eventually, a lack of employment availability forced Biden and family to move to Claymont, Delaware in 1953, where his father became a car salesman. Biden attended the Archmere Academy, where he joined the school's football team, and participated in an anti-segregation sit-in. An above-average student, Biden graduated in 1961 and attended the University of Delaware where he continued to play football. At one point, he considered a career in the sport but eventually decided against it. He began dating Neelia Hunter, a classmate at the university, and told her he hoped to become a U.S. Senator by the age of 30 and eventually become president. Biden decided to axe his plans to be on the varsity football team and focused on his political ambitions. He received a half scholarship to the Syracuse University College of Law. Biden became disinterested in law school and came under fire for plagiarized sources in a 15-page paper. Biden blamed this on his lack of knowledge regarding citations. He received an F on the assignment, though it was later erased from his record. Eventually, Biden graduated and managed to be exempt from the Vietnam War draft. He married Nelia. He had three children with her. From 1968 to 1969, Biden registered as an independent. He clerked for William Prickett, a Republican in the area, and considered himself more a Republican. However, he was disgusted by the far-right ideas of then-Democratic Delaware Governor Charles Terry. He supported moderate Republican Russell Wilson in the 1968 Delaware gubernatorial race. Wilson was successful in his attempts. In 1969, Biden registered as a Democrat to run for political office. 
he ran for Newcastle County Council, running a more leftist campaign despite the area being conservative. Biden won by a comfortable margin. Before taking office, Biden was already discussing a potential run for U.S. Senate. In 1972, Biden retired to run for U.S. Senate against incumbent Republican Senator J. Caleb Boggs, who was seeking a third term. Boggs initially sought to retire, but President Richard Nixon, who was seeking a second term against South Dakota Senator George McGovern that year, convinced Boggs to run again to avoid a competitive Republican primary between then-Wilmington mayor and former Congressman Harry Haskell Jr. and then-Congressman Pete DuPont. Biden was unopposed in the Democratic primary. Biden lacked campaign funds, and constantly trailed to Boggs by 30 points in polls. However, Biden hoped he could gain momentum as a young, fresh candidate in contrast with the older Boggs. Biden at the time ran a pro-environmentalist, non-interventionist campaign and supported withdrawal from Vietnam. In 2004, it was disclosed that someone on Biden's campaign met with Mafia hitman Frank Sheeran and discussed the possibility of him not distributing the Wilmington New Journal, a prominent newspaper in Delaware the week before the election as the paper featured a negative as about Biden. Sheeran agreed and the newspaper ceased distribution the week before the race. Incumbent Senator Caleb Boggs is running a little behind a man named Joseph Biden who is too young to go into the U.S. Senate. He won't be 30 until November the 20th. Boggs is following, lagging behind Biden. Biden won by a narrow 3,162 votes on election night. However, before being sworn in, Biden was faced with tragedy. On December 18, 1972, Biden's wife Nelia died in a car accident in Hokesson, Delaware. She was only 30 years old. His youngest daughter, Naomi I was also in the vehicle, and died at just one year of age. The tragedy gave Biden also convinced Biden to resign, though he was later convinced against that decision. Biden was sworn in on January 3, 1973. Biden became a single father for four years until meeting Jill Jacobs on a blind date set up by his brother. Eventually the two were married and had one daughter, Ashley, together. During his first term, Biden pushed for more environmental regulations and opposed busing desegregation, a position which many have criticized him for to this date. In 1974, Time magazine called Biden one of the 200 faces for the future. Biden ran for re-election to a second term in 1978 and beat Republican James H. Baxter Jr., the Sussex County recorder of deeds by a 58-41-point margin. Biden became known as a more moderate senator who would vote across the aisle. He even voted in favor of President Ronald Reagan's tax cuts. After Republicans retook the Senate in 1981, Biden became the ranking minority leader of Senate Judiciary Committee. He also focused on arms control regulations. However, Biden became a bigger critic of Reagan's in 1986, when he was re-elected to a third term by a landslide, beating former Delaware State House Majority Leader John M. Burris by a 60-40% to 40 margin. In 1988, Biden attempted to fulfill his lifelong dream of winning the presidency. He announced his candidacy in a Wilmington train station in the summer of 1987. A twilight economy, an economy that is neither surging nor collapsing, its growth, its productivity, its world position, steadily, inexorably slowing, delivering a sluggish state. At first, 
Biden was considered a serious contender, especially after Colorado Senator Gary Hart, who was considered the Democratic Party front-runner up to that point dropped out due to an affair. However, Biden began to trail in the polls to Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis and Tennessee Congressman Dick Gephardt. Biden was accused of plagiarizing a speech written by former UK Labour Party leader Neil Kinnock. Biden cited Kinnock as his source during one rally, but forgot to when he gave the speech to another crowd. The controversy led Biden drop out and return to the Senate. Dukakis eventually won the Democratic nomination for president in 1988, though he lost the election to Republican Vice President George H.W. Bush. Biden returned to the Senate, and was re-elected to a fourth term in 1990, defeating Delaware's Deputy Attorney General, Republican M. Jane Brady by a landslide 63-36% margin. He came under fire for his push of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act in 1994, which vastly expanded the death penalty. He also came under fire for supporting the Hyde Amendment which restricted some tax dollars from going toward performing abortions. In 1996, he was re-elected by another landslide margin of 60-38% over Republican businessman Raymond Clatworthy. Biden controversially voted with Bush on multiple occasions, including voting for the Iraq War. In 2002, Clatworthy challenged Biden to a rematch, but lost to him by a 58-41% margin. In 2004, after winning the Democratic nomination for president, Massachusetts Senator John Kerry considered Biden as a potential running mate, though he eventually selected North Carolina Senator John Edwards instead. The two lost to incumbent Republican President George W. Bush that year. Biden became a staunch opponent of Bush in his final term, opposing deploying more troops to Iraq. However, he did vote for the Bush tax cuts. In 2006, Biden's son Bo ran for Attorney General of Delaware. Although 2006 was a favorable year for Democrats, Bo Biden faced tough competition from Newcastle Superior Court Judge Ferris Wharton, a Republican. However, Bo Biden went on to beat Wharton by a 53-47% margin. In 2008, Joe Biden announced he'd run for the presidency again. Friends, today I filed the necessary papers to become candidate for president of the United States. Biden faced a hard time polling and trailed more prominent candidates like New Mexico governor, former U.S. Energy Secretary, former U.N. Ambassador and former Congressman Dennis Richardson. Former North Carolina Senator and nominee for Vice President in 2004 John Edwards, and the two front-runners, New York Senator and former First Lady Hillary Clinton, and Illinois Senator Barack Obama. Biden's lackluster poll numbers gave pundits little reason to take him seriously. Biden placed fifth in the Iowa caucus, only getting 23 votes. During the New Hampshire primaries, Biden places sixth, still failing to get 1% of the vote. Biden withdrew his candidacy and focused on his next Senate race. However, after Barack Obama won the Democratic nomination, Biden was announced as his running mate for vice president. So let me introduce to you the next president, the next vice president of the United States of America, Joe Biden. The Catholic dioceses in Scranton criticized Biden for his pro-choice positions on abortion and barred him from receiving Holy Communion in Scranton. He was criticized after announcing he wouldn't speak at Catholic schools if elected. 
No law in Delaware bars candidates for run from running for two public offices at the same time. Because of this, Biden ran for Senate and Vice President at the same time. In the Senate, he faced conservative activist Christine O'Donnell. I'm not a witch. I'm nothing you've heard. I'm you. None of us are perfect, but none of us can be happy with what we see all around us. Politicians who think spending, trading favors, and backroom deals are the ways to stay in office. I'll go to Washington and do what you'd do. I'm Christine O'Donnell, and I approve this message. I'm you. In the presidential race, he and Obama faced Republican Arizona Senator John McCain and his running mate, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. Biden faced Palin in one debate. Weeks before Election Day, Obama and Biden pulled ahead in polling. On Election Day, the Obama-Biden ticket beat the McCain-Palin ticket by a 53 to 46 percent popular vote margin. In the Electoral College, Obama received 365 electoral votes, as compared to McCain's 173 electoral votes. Obama flipped nine states that Bush won in 2004, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Iowa, Indiana, Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, and Florida. Obama also flipped Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. The same night, Biden was also re-elected in the Senate, defeating O'Donnell by a 65 to 35 percent margin. Biden was sworn into his newest term on January 3, 2009, but resigned less than a week later. Obama became America's 44th president, and first American-American president on January 20, 2009. Biden became the 47th vice president, and America's first Roman Catholic vice president. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely. That I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. And that I will well and faithfully discharge. And I will well and faithfully discharge. The duties of the office on which I am about to enter. The duties of the office upon which I'm about to enter. So help me God. So help me God. Thank you, Mr. Justice. During Biden's first term as vice president, he helped devise a plan to convince Pennsylvania Senator Arlen Specter to switch parties from Republican to Democrat, giving Democrats a supermajority in the U.S. Senate. He also helped devise the Iraq withdrawal plan. In 2010, Bo Biden was encouraged to run for his father's old Senate seat in a special election. However, he declined, instead opting to seek a second term as Delaware's attorney general. Bo Biden had no Republican challenger, and only faced independent Doug Camp, who he defeated by a 79-21% margin. Biden supported deploying troops into Libya in 2011. Biden came under fire for many of his gaffes. Pardon me? In 2012, he and Obama sought out a second term in the White House. 
They faced former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney and Wisconsin Congressman Paul Ryan on the Republican ticket together. During the campaign, Biden came under fire for a comment he made about slavery. Unchain Wall Street. They're going to put you all back in chains. Biden and Ryan participated in one debate before the election. Polls indicted a dead heat between Obama and Romney. In spite of this, Obama and Biden managed to win a second term in the White House. The Obama-Biden ticket won 332 electoral votes, compared to the Romney-Paul ticket which received 206 electoral votes. Obama and Biden also managed to win the popular vote by a 51-47% to 47 margin. Despite this, Romney managed to flip two states Obama carried in 2016, North Carolina and Indiana whilst also flipping back Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District. Biden was sworn into a second term on January 20, 2013. Throughout his second term, he advocated in favor of gun control. In 2016, Obama was unable to run for a third term due to term limits. Biden was heavily rumored to run, as the it's customary for vice president to succeed the president in office. Biden heavily considered a run. Biden's son Bo retired as attorney general of Delaware in 2015 to focus on a potential run for governor of the state in 2016. However, Joe Biden was soon faced with tragedy once again. Biden's son Bo was diagnosed with brain cancer. On May 30, 2015, he died at just 46 years of age. His death took a toll on Biden. Speculation continued to rise about another presidential run. An empty stage was reserved for the first Democratic debate in 2016 in case Biden decided to enter last minute. However, Biden decided against the idea and announced in fall of 2015 that he wouldn't be a candidate for president. He endorsed former Secretary of State, former New York Senator and former First Lady Hillary Clinton for the presidency. She won the nomination, but lost to New York businessman Donald Trump. It was leaked that Clinton was considering making Biden her Secretary of State should she win. Former Democratic National Committee Chair Donna Brazile revealed in a book that she considered replacing the ticket of Clinton and Virginia Senator and former Governor Tim Kaine with Biden and New Jersey Senator former Newark Mayor Cory Booker. Biden left office on January 20, 2017 and was replaced by Indiana Governor and former Congressman Mike Pence. Biden left on an Amtrak train. After leaving office, Biden spent most of his time campaigning for Democrats during the 2018 midterms. Rumors emerged that Biden would run for president in 2020. In 2019, Biden was attacked for his past conduct toward women. In spite of this, Biden announced his campaign for the White House that month. Biden is generally viewed as a moderate, though he has claimed to be the most progressive Democrat in the 2020 field. Now, he's hopes to be America's 46th president. If elected, he'd be the oldest man ever to win the White House at 78 years of age. Polls have indicated Biden is the front-runner in the Democratic primary. The country wasn't built by Wall Street bankers, CEOs, and hedge fund managers. It was built by you. For more Presidential Profiles 2020, check out Politics Weekly each Tuesday. I hope to see the Republican Party assume once again the mantle of being the party of Lincoln. The Candidates Keep America Great! 
their story. Yeah, you're always when you're young, you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future. But I'm interested in what you can bring to the present. And their fight for the White House. I'm the most progressive record of anybody running. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. Presidential Profiles 2020. How we could actually make this government work, not just for a thin slice at the top, but make it work for everyone else. I think that, sure, if people want to specula speculate about running mates, I encourage that, because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate as vice president. William Floyd Weld was born in Smithtown, New York on July 31, 1945. Weld's family had a large role in politics. His ancestor, William Floyd was a New York congressman and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. When he grew up, Weld pursued a legal career and was a counsel on Watergate. He worked with a woman named Hillary Rodham. In 1978, he launched his political career by running for Attorney General of Massachusetts. However, he lost to incumbent Democrat Francis Bellotti by a 78-22% to 22 margin. In 1981, Associate Attorney General Rudy Giuliani recommended that President Ronald Reagan appoint Weld to be the U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts. Reagan did so, and Weld immediately got to work, launching an extensive investigation into then-Boston Mayor Kevin White for corruption allegations. The investigation led to 20 employees being indicted. The Boston Globe praised Weld's work. Weld was appointed to the Justice Department where future FBI Director and Special Counsel Head Robert Mueller reported to him. However, Weld resigned in 1988 over the conduct of U.S. Attorney General Edwin Meese. In 1990, Weld ran for governor of Massachusetts. I'm going to be asking that one insistent question. Why should there not be a hearing? Why should one man in a democracy block the conduct of the people's business at the federal level. Weld faced former Congressman Paul W. Cronin and state lawmaker Steve Pierce in the Republican primary. Weld easily won the nomination and faced Democratic Attorney General of Massachusetts John Silber. Massachusetts is a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans by a two-to-one margin and most polls showed Silber with a slight lead. In spite of this, Weld ran a moderate campaign, appealing to moderate Democratic voters in the state. The election received national attention, and Weld beat Silber by a narrow 50 to 46 percent, making him the first Republican to win a governor's race in Massachusetts since 1970. Weld was extremely fiscally conservative as governor, and managed to at one point receive an A from the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank. However, he was more liberal on social issues, and supported gun control legislation in the state, and supported abortion rights. Weld became extremely popular, and in 1994, ran for re-election against Democrat Mark Roosevelt, who was his brother-in-law, and was also the great-grandson of President Theodore Roosevelt. Weld beat Roosevelt by a 71-23% to margin, the biggest margin for any candidate running for governor of Massachusetts in history. In late 1995, Weld announced his candidacy for U.S. Senate, challenging incumbent Democratic Senator John Kerry. The race was amongst the most competitive that year. However, Kerry defeated Weld by a 52-45% to 45 margin. In 1997, Democratic President Bill Clinton offered Weld the job of U.S. Ambassador to Mexico. Weld accepted 
but Republican North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms blocked his nomination inevitably. Weld fought back, but eventually conceded defeat. By this time, Weld had already resigned as governor. Weld disappeared from the political spotlight until 2006, when he sought the Republican nomination for governor of New York. However, he lost the nomination to former Assemblyman John Faso who lost by a landslide to Democratic New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer. In 2008, Weld made headlines for his support of Democratic Illinois Senator Barack Obama's campaign for president, something he now claims to regret. In 2012, he supported another former Massachusetts governor, Mitt Romney for president. Romney won the Republican nomination, but lost to Obama. In 2016, Weld endorsed Ohio Governor John Kosich for the Republican nomination, though he lost the Republican nomination to New York businessman Donald Trump. Weld decided to run for vice president of the United States as a libertarian. Well, I'm here vouching for Mrs. Clinton, and I think it's high time somebody did. Weld joined a ticket with former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson. Weeks before the election, Weld came under fire for what many viewed as an endorsement of Hillary Clinton's campaign. Clinton was the woman he worked with on the Watergate Council. Ultimately, Trump defeated Clinton, with the Johnson-Weld getting 3% of the vote nationally, a record for the Libertarian Party line. Rumors spread that Weld would run for president as a libertarian in 2020, however Weld declined, instead opting to run as a Republican, despite previously vowing never to rejoin the party. Now, as the only Republican challenger to Donald Trump, Weld hopes to be America's 46th president. I really think if we have six more years of the same stuff we've had out of the White House the last two years, that would be a, a political tragedy. For more Presidential Profiles 2020, keep it right here on Politics Weekly. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. He's become a hero to some, a threat to others. He is America's 45th president. Donald Trump has gone from billionaire real estate mogul to television personality to leader of the free world for almost four years. Now, he hopes to be America's commander-in-chief for eight years. This is President Donald Trump, and this is his story. The candidates. Donald Trump has got to be defeated, and I intend to do everything that I can with every other progressive in America, making sure that that happens. Their stories. We got a real opportunity to build something. And their fight for the White House. Keep America great! Exclamation point. Keep America great. This is Presidential Profile 2020. At that inflection moment, where were you? This is that moment. It's our job to remind the American people that we're looking out for them. It's so all of you showing the country how you do this. The special interests and the powerful have such an outsized influence and outcome to restore our democracy. Donald John Trump was born on June 14th. 1946 in Queens, New York to Fred and Mary Ann. 
both successful real estate developers. He is of Palestinian and Scottish descent. Trump grew up in Queens and attended Q Forest School from kindergarten up until grade 7. He joined the New York Military Academy when he was 13 before transferring to go to Wharton High School and University of Pennsylvania. In college, he helped out with the family business. In the 1960s, Trump was eligible to serve in the draft. However, he received multiple deferments due to medical issues surrounding leg spurs, a point of contention over the years. Trump is presbyterian. Trump's brother, Fred Jr. died of alcoholism. As a result, Trump himself does not drink video. Trump and his father started a business together in 1968 called E. Trump and Son. It was sued for racial discrimination in 1969. The case was settled under Fred. Eventually, Fred resigned to become chairman, making Donald president and CEO of the company. The company was later renamed the Trump Organization. The company was later sued again for racial discrimination as the Trump were accused of making unfair living arrangements for African Americans. I have no intention of running for president, but I'd like the point to get across that we have a great country, but it's not going to be great for long if we're going to continue to lose $200 billion. Trump put those suspicions aside, instead focusing on the business. Trump became a pop culture sensation and would go on to cameo in multiple different movie projects such as The Little Rascals, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York and Zoolander. He also starred in a series of commercials for McDonald's. I put together some really impressive deals, but this thing you've pulled off, it's amazing. A big and tasty for just a dollar? How do you do it? What's your secret? Got a buck? You're in luck, because you can get a delicious, beefy, big and tasty, a McChicken sandwich, and lots of your other favorites on McDonald's dollar menu every day. Together, Grimace, we could own this town. However, in 2000, Trump announced his candidacy for the presidency. Trump announced he'd be running on the Reform Party for president, running a progressive campaign at the time supporting partial birth abortion and universal health care. He criticized his primary opponent, former White House Communications Director, Pat Buchanan for what is so-called far-right positions. I just think it's ridiculous. I mean, he wrote a book because, look, he's a Hitler lover. I guess he's an anti-Semite. He doesn't like the blacks. He doesn't like the gays. I, 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 it's just incredible that anybody could embrace this guy. Trump eventually obtained the Reform Party's nomination and said he'd be interested in marrying his longtime girlfriend, Slavic supermodel Milana Janavs, also known as Miliana. Many questioned if Trump's campaign was serious. Eventually Trump dropped out and Buchanan was chosen as the party's new nominee. Trump went back to business and started the hit show The Apprentice. Because Mr. Trump, I was Hey look, you claim to be like me. The difference is I work hard. You've been lazy, you've been nothing but trouble, and now you cut them off as they're fighting each other for who should be fired. Oh, Michael, yes. Michael. Yes, sir. You're fired. 
In 2004, Trump married Melania. At the time, many New York elitists such as New York Senator and former First Lady Hillary Clinton, were in attendance. Trump eventually started a spin-off show, The Celebrity Apprentice. However, Trump would soon be back in the political spot. I want him to show his birth certificate. There's something on that birth certificate that he doesn't like. Trump made national headlines again when he questioned President Barack Obama's American citizenship and demanded to see his birth certificate to prove he wasn't Kenyan. In 2009, Trump changed his party registration back to Republican and considered running for either governor of New York in 2010 or for president of the United States in 2012. Trump declined both offers. Trump endorsed former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney in his fight to win the presidency, holding multiple fundraisers for him. Ultimately, Romney lost to Obama, but in 2016, Trump made a crucial announcement. I will be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Trump came under fire for his controversial stance on immigration and controversial comments made about Arizona Senator John McCain. Regardless, Trump became the front-runner in the Republican primary, challenging candidates like Texas Senator Ted Cruz, Ohio Governor John Kasich and former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. Trump became extremely controversial for his positions on immigration, his travel ban idea, and comments overall deemed offensive by many. His performance during debates led to a ratings jump for multiple TV stations. Additionally, Trump came at odds with the press, who he accused of being unfair to him, and was lambasted by many for comments he made about women. In spite of this, Trump remained the front-runner in the polls consistently, and eventually won the Republican nomination for president. Trump faced now former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. You can put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Trump chose Indiana Governor and former Congressman Mike Pence as his running mate. I would tell you that for me, the sanctity of life um, proceeds out of the belief that that ancient principle that um, where, where God says, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. And so for my first time in public life, I've sought to stand with great compassion for the sanctity of life. The campaign between Clinton and Trump became heated, but two weeks before the election, a controversial video from Access Hollywood was revealed featuring Trump in a conversation with reporter Billy Bush stating disparaging comments about women. Multiple Republicans called on Trump to drop out, but Trump declined. Consequently, Clinton saw a major uptick in polls as a result. The New York Times gave Clinton a 97% chance of winning the White House. In spite of this, Trump campaigned hard in the Rust Belt, in hopes to win over typically populist, left-leaning voters. A few weeks before Election Day, 
FBI Director James Comey reintroduced an investigation into Clinton's email scandal, regarding a private server she used as Secretary of State. Many people have accused Comey of using this as a political tool to prevent her from winning the White House. In the huge news, uh, actually, the AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania. That is uh, the race, frankly. Uh, there is no path forward for Hillary. Election Day, Trump shocked the crowd by winning the Electoral College vote. He managed to flip six states Barack Obama carried in 2012, Ohio. Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Florida. This made the election the first time since George H.W. Bush's victory in 1988 that a Republican presidential candidate carried Pennsylvania, Michigan and Maine's first congressional district. It also made him the first Republican candidate since Ronald Reagan in 1984 to carry Wisconsin. The election left voters shocked, with many blaming what they saw as Clinton's poor campaign decisions for her loss. In spite of her loss, Clinton won the national popular vote by nearly 2 million votes, leading Senator Barbara Boxer, DCA, to draft a bill to abolish the Electoral College. The election saw the most amount of faithless votes of any election. In Washington state, former Secretary of State Colin Powell received three electoral votes, whilst activist Faith Spotted Eagle received one, making her the first Native American to receive any electoral votes. In Texas, Ohio Governor John Kasich and Ron Paul, who was a congressman from the state, each received an electoral vote. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders also received an electoral vote out of the state of Hawaii. Mike Pence became the 48th Vice President of the United States. At age 70, Trump was the oldest president ever inaugurated. On January 20th, 2017, the day of his inauguration, Trump filed to run for re-election as president. Trump received polarized reaction for his travel ban, his proposed border wall, the GOP tax cut and his trade policy amongst other things. In 2018, Trump announced a slogan for his re-election bid. Keep America great. Now, Trump hopes to continue being America's 45th president. For more presidential profiles 2020, keep it right here on Politics Weekly. Uh, you know, I think if you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. He's one of the most far-left candidates in the Democratic field. His unconventional ideas have given him a cult following and made him one of the front runners in the Democratic primary. This is Bernie Sanders, and this is his story. The candidates keep America great. Their story. Yeah, you're always when you're young, you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future. But I'm interested in what you can bring to the present. And their fight for the White House. I have the most progressive record of anybody running. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, 
I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. Presidential Profiles 2020. How we could actually make this government work, not just for a thin slice at the top, but make it work for everyone else. I think that, sure, if people want to specula speculate about running mates, I encourage that, because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate as vice president. Bernard Sanders was born on the 8th of September, 1941 in Brooklyn, New York to Elias Ben Yehuda and Dolores Sanders, both immigrants from Russia and Poland. Sanders' uncle Abraham Sknutzer was killed during the Holocaust, and the events leading up to Adolf Hitler's election as Chancellor of Germany sparked Sanders' interest in politics. Sanders attended PS 197 in elementary school. His older brother Larry has said that although basic necessities like food and housing were affordable for the family, more expensive items like rugs or curtains were harder to afford. Sanders attended James Madison High School and joined the track team where he eventually became captain and took third place in a Nick Indoor race. Sanders ran for student body president in high school, but came in third place. Shortly after graduation, Sanders was faced with tragedy when his mother died at just 46 years of age. A few years later, his father died at just 57 years of age. Sanders attended Brooklyn College, and eventually the University of Chicago. At the time he became a writer, and started writing rape fetish erotica, which many have criticized him for today. Sanders quickly became a political activist in college. He joined Young People's Social League and joined the civil rights movement in the 1960s. He was even arrested at one point for his involvement. He also rallied against George Beadle's segregated housing initiative and attended Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous March on Washington. Sanders also heavily protested the Vietnam War. After graduating from college, Sanders perused different jobs like being a teacher and a carpenter. However, he decided to move to Vermont in 1968. He made what he called radical educational films for public schools in the state. Ordinary citizens feel very hopeless about the future. In Burlington, we have shown that you can stand up to the system and at least you can win some good victories. Sanders launched multiple third-party campaigns on the Liberty Union Party line. In 1972, he ran for governor of Vermont against Democrat Thomas Salmon and Republican Luther Hackett. Salmon defeated Hackett by a 53-43% margin. Sanders only received 1% of the vote. Sanders also ran for Senate that year, only getting 2% of the vote against Democrat Randolph T. Major, Jr.'s 33%, and Republican incumbent Robert Stafford's 64%. Sanders made another effort for Senate two years later, this time getting 4%, as compared to Republican Congressman Richard Mallory's 46% and Democrat Patrick Leahy's 49%. Sanders ran again for in 1976, once again seeking the Liberty Union line. He faced Republican Richard Snelling and Democratic State Treasurer Stella Hackle. 
Sanders did slightly better, receiving a better than expected 6% of the vote. However, he still came in third as Hackle received 40% of the vote, and Snelling received 53%. Sanders finally saw his big break in 1981 when he ran for mayor of Burlington, Vermont. I won the election, I think, because we effectively put together a coalition of low-income people, elderly people, who in Vermont are very often up against the wall economically in very bad shape. Sanders challenged incumbent Democratic Mayor Gordon Paquette. Sanders, who had never won an election in his life, which led to many not viewing him as a serious candidate. This led to Paquette barely campaigning due to his belief that Sanders couldn't win. However, in a down-to-the-wire race, Sanders beat Paquette by just 10 votes, making him the city's 37th mayor at just 39 years of age. If I were the president of the largest bank in Burlington, I'd be real nervous about you. Well, they may be. Sanders called himself a socialist during his time as mayor, and has come under fire for statements he has made about the Soviet Union at the time. I think it's also fair to point out that when we were in Moscow, for example, I think most of the people here also were extremely impressed by their public transportation Sanders hosted a foreign policy speech with libertarian socialist Noam Chomsky, whom he praised. Sanders balanced the city's budget and brought a minor league baseball team, the Vermont Reds, to town. His legacy was most remembered for his Lake Champlain renovation efforts. Sanders was easily re-elected multiple times. In 1983 he defeated Democrat Judy Stephanie by 52-30% margin. He also beat Republican James Gilson who received 17% of the vote. In 1985, he faced a more serious challenger, former Democratic Lieutenant Governor of Vermont, Brian Burns as well as Independent Diane Gallagher. In spite of the challenge, Sanders won by a 56-31% margin over Burns. Gallagher received 12% of the vote. In 1987, he was elected to his final term, defeating Democrat Alderman Paul Lafayette by a 55-30% margin. In 1987, U.S. News and World Reports ranked Sanders amongst the greatest mayors in America and called Burlington one of the most livable cities. When they stood up to the bosses of the government and fought to create the unions that would provide them with decent wages and decent working conditions, freedom, dignity, the willingness to stand up against the mighty and the powerful, the human spirit, strong, resilient, alive. In 1988, Vermont's single Republican congressman Jim Jeffords announced he'd retire from his House seat to run for U.S. Senate. The vacancy gave Vermont Democrats state lawmaker Paul Poirier, whilst Republicans nominated Vermont's Lieutenant Governor Peter Smith. Sanders launched an independent run for the seat. With Poirier losing momentum, Democrats turned to Sanders. On election day, Sanders lost to Smith by a 41-37% margin. A year later, Sanders retired as Burlington's mayor to focus on a rematch in 1990. This time, 
Vermont's Democratic Party cross-endorsed him. Smith's decision to support an assault weapons ban hurt him with gun-owning constituents. In 1990, Sanders beat Smith by a 56-39% margin. Sanders angered colleges on both sides of the aisle for accusing them of being bought off by lobbyists. Sanders started the Congressional Progressive Caucus, but refused to caucus with either party. He also fought for banking reform in the House. In 1992, Sanders ran for re-election. He faced Republican Tim Philbin. Democrats nominated Lewis Young. In spite of challenge from both sides, Sanders defeated Philbin by a 57-30% margin. Young only received 7% of the vote. They want to see our industry be rebuilt. That's what they want to see. No more B-2 bombers. No more Star Wars. Let's make the quality products we need. Let's invest in American industry. The Amer no, I won't yield. The American people want to see our kids educated. In 1994, Sanders faced his most formidable foe yet, Republican John Carroll. Carroll was gaining momentum in the race, and a strong Republican current in 1994 gave Sanders the fight of his life. Sanders ultimately beat Carroll, albeit by narrow 49-46% margin. This marks Sanders' narrowest congressional win to date. Sanders had more luck in 1996 when he beat Republican Susan Sweetser by a 55-32% margin. Democrat Jack Long received 9% of the vote. In 1998, he beat Republican Mark Candon by landslide 63-32% margin. He saw his biggest House victory in 2000, when he beat Republican Corin Ann Kerin by a 69-18% margin. Democrat Peter Diamond Stone received a measly 5% of the vote. Sanders retained his progressive voting record, opposing the war in Iraq. In 2002, he beat Republican Bill Mute by a 64-32% margin. Sanders ran for his final House term in 2004 when he beat Republican Greg Park by a 67-24% margin, and Democrat Larry Brown, who received 7% of the vote. Sanders ardently opposed the bailout of big banks in his final term, and opposed the Patriot Act. In 2006, incumbent Senator Jim Jeffords, who was elected as a Republican but had since become an independent who caucuses with Democrats announced he would not be seeking re-election. Sanders ran on the Democratic line to replace him. He was endorsed by New York Senator Chuck Schumer. Sanders won the Democratic primary, but rejected the Democratic line to run as an independent. Nevertheless, no Democrat appeared on the ballot, and Sanders retained the endorsement of the Vermont Democratic Party. He faced Republican businessman Richard Tarrant. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message because dishonest ads should not be part of Vermont politics. For months, my opponent, Rich Tarrant, has been spending millions telling us about himself. Well, it's his money and he can spend it if he wants, but he has no right to distort my record or what I stand for. I can't match his money ad for ad, but I'll let the truth speak for itself. I trust you to use your good judgment. Please go to my website and check the facts. Thanks for listening.
Sanders beat Tarrant by a 65-32% margin. Sanders announced he would caucus with the Democratic Party, which gave them a narrow 51-49-seat majority in the U.S. Senate at the time. Sanders pushed for banking reform and supported an auditing of the Federal Reserve. Sanders opposed President-elect Barack Obama's nomination of Timothy Geithner for Treasury Secretary. He, along with fellow Democrats such as West Virginia Senator Robert Burke, Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold and Iowa Senator Tom Harkin all voted no on Geithner's nomination, though he was eventually confirmed by the Senate. We don't know what the overall election results for the United States will be tonight, but what we do know is that this is a pivotal moment in American history. In 2012, Sanders ran for re-election against Republican John McGovern, a former Massachusetts state lawmaker. Sanders beat McGovern by a 71-24% margin, the largest victory of his political career. In 2016, Bernie Sanders made a crucial announcement. Hillary Clinton's first official challenger for the Democratic presidential nomination. Sanders announced his candidacy for President of the United States as a Democrat. Initially, Sanders wasn't taken seriously, however, Sanders saw a huge following of younger supporters and saw a huge pouring in of donations. However, he still lacked in the polls in comparison to front-runner, former First Lady, former New York Senator and former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Madam Chair, I move that the convention suspend the procedural rules. I move that all votes, all votes cast by delegates be reflected in the official record. And I move that Hillary Clinton be selected as the nominee of the Democratic Party for President of the United States. Sanders received polarized reaction for his positions. Many praised what they viewed as parallels to President Franklin D. Roosevelt who argued for workers' rights and left-wing populism. Others criticized Sanders for his socialist voting record. Sanders won 23 states, but lost the nomination to Clinton. WikiLeaks later leaked classified emails from the Democratic National Committee revealing me-dailing occurred to help Clinton obtain enough delegates to win the Democratic nomination. Sanders endorsed Clinton's campaign for president regardless, but changed his party registration from Democrat back to independent, though he would continue to caucus alongside Democrats. Clinton would eventually lose the general election to Republican New York businessman Donald Trump. Sanders instantly became a staunch critic of Trump and campaigned for left-wing socialist candidates like himself during the 2018 midterm elections. One such candidate was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who defeated New York Representative Joe Crowley in a Democratic primary upset. This is what organizing looks like. Sanders was re-elected yet again to the U.S. 
Senate in 2018 by a 67-27% margin defeating Republican Lawrence Lupin. Rumors spread that Sanders would run for president again as a Democrat in 2020. In early 2019, he announced he'd do just that. If elected, he would be America's first Jewish president and would be the oldest president at 79 years of age. Polls consistently show him in second behind for former U.S. Vice President and former Delaware Senator Joe Biden. Now, he hopes to be America's 46th president. Welcome to the political revolution. To learn more about every candidate for president, keep it right here on Politics Weekly, and make sure to stay after each episode for Presidential Profiles 2020. We need to call it out, we need to attack it head on, and we need to make structural change in our government, in our economy, and in our country. She is one of the most popular and well-known sitting Democratic senators. Her polarizing views have bounced her up to the top of the 2020 Democratic field. This is Elizabeth Warren, and this is her story. The candidates keep America great. Their story. Yeah, you're always when you're young, you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future. But I'm interested in what you can bring to the present. And their fight for the White House. I have the most progressive record of anybody running. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. Presidential Profiles 2020. How we could actually make this government work, not just for a thin slice at the top, but make it work for everyone else. I think that, sure, if people want to specula speculate about running mates, I encourage that, because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate as vice president. Elizabeth Ann Herring was born on June 22, 1949 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma to Pauline and Donald. Warren has described her family's situation as middle class. She and her family grew up in Norman, Oklahoma. For many years she claimed to be of Native American descent, a claim that landed her in hot water. Her family fell into debt after her father got a heart attack. Her mother found a job at a Sears shop. Herring herself intended on becoming a teacher, but dropped out of college to marry Jim Warren at age 19. She got a job at IBM, forcing her to move to Houston before moving to New Jersey for a job offer Jim received. They had two children together before divorcing. She eventually married law professor Bruce Mann just two years after divorcing Jim. Warren taught at a school for children with disabilities before pursuing a career as a lawyer. She became a professor at Rutgers University. She shortly taught at Harvard as well. In 2008, then-Senate Majority Leader and Nevada Senator Harry Reid appointed Warren to an oversight committee. President Barack Obama controversially appointed her too as the special advisor for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau before 2010. It now looks as though the President Obama, the administration, is poised to appoint Elizabeth Warren to head up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau.
Warren retired after less than a year to run for U.S. Senate in Massachusetts. In the Democratic primary, she faced state lawmaker Tom Conroy and Newton Mayor Seti Warren. Ultimately, Warren won the nomination and faced incumbent Republican Senator Scott Brown, who was seeking a full term in office. The race became the most nationally watched non-presidential race of the 2012 election season. In 2011, Warren gained traction for a viral video where she explains her economic plan. However, Warren's past Native American claims came to life. Brown ran a moderate campaign for re-election. Warren was a keynote speaker at the 2012 Democratic National Convention, advocating for the re-election of President Barack Obama. The race became close, but Warren opened up a lead in the final weeks of campaigning. I'm Elizabeth Warren. I'm running for the United States Senate, and before you hear a bunch of ridiculous attack ads, I want to tell you who I am. In November, Warren defeated Brown by a 54 to 46 percent margin. Warren began drafting legislation to add more Wall Street regulations. Many people have categorized her positions as left-wing populism. Many rumors began circulating that she'd run for president in 2016, but Warren declined. Many progressives hoped she'd endorse Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, as many compared her policies with his. However, she controversially endorsed former U.S. Secretary of State, former New York Senator and former U.S. First Lady Hillary Clinton. This was a decision that led to protests outside of Warren's Senate office. Many rumors stimulated that Clinton might choose Warren as her running mate, which would in turn lead to a two-woman ticket. However, Virginia's Senator, former Governor and former Richmond Mayor Tim Kaine was chosen instead. You were asked why a career as a Wells Fargo insider like you, uh, why that made you the right person to fix the fundamental problems at the bank. And you said, quote, because I've been making change for 29 plus years at Wells Fargo. Clinton eventually lost to New York businessman Donald Trump. Warren became an instant critic of Trump. Tron, attack Warren for false claims of Native American heritage. We're here. Although we have a representative in Congress who they say was here a long time ago. They call her Poco. The conflict was settled when Warren released data showing she was only one in 1,024th Native American, sparking outrage from Native American tribes. Warren ran for re-election in 2018, facing Republican state lawmaker Jeff Deal by a landslide 60 to 36 percent margin. Warren announced in late 2018 that she'd be running for president. Some polls show her in the top three Democrats running in the 2020 election, with some even showing her in second behind former U.S. Vice President and former Delaware Senator Joe Biden. Now, she hopes to America's 46th president. It's the fight of our lives. For more Presidential Profiles 2020, keep it right here on Politics Weekly. Are you gonna run for President of the United States and do something about it? Do you think she should? Do you think she should? Are you gonna run? <laughs> I have decided to run and will be making a formal announcement within the next week. Whoa! A congresswoman, a war hero, and a progressive, who is Tulsi Gabbard, the woman who is standing up to the establishment she once was a part of and now wants to be president.
the candidates. Donald Trump has got to be defeated, and I intend to do everything that I can with every other progressive in America in making sure that that happens. Their stories. We got a real opportunity to build something. And their fight for the White House. Keep America great! Exclamation point. Keep America great. This is Presidential Profile 2020. At that inflection moment, where were you? This is that moment. It's our job to remind the American people that we're looking out for them. So all of you, showing the country how you do this. The special interests and the powerful have such an outsized influence and outcome to restore our democracy. Tulsi Gabbard was born on April 12, 1981 to Mike and Carol in America, Somalia, where she and her family resided until age three when they moved to Hawaii. Gabbard is mixed race. Her father practices Catholicism while her mother practices Hinduism. Gabbard is a believer in Hinduism. Gabbard was homeschooled for most of her life as a child and attended Hawaii Pacific University until 2002 when she ran for the Hawaii State Legislature. Hawaii ran as a conservative Democrat at the time and initially opposed gay marriage and civil unions, a position which has proven to be controversial to this day. Aloha. In my past, I said and believed things that were wrong, and worse, they were very hurtful to people in the LGBTQ community and to their loved ones. Many years ago, I apologized for my words and more importantly, for the negative impact that they had. I sincerely repeat my apology today. I'm deeply sorry for having said them. After winning the nomination, Gabbard defeated Republican Alfonso Jimenez by a 65 to 35% margin. Gabbard became the youngest member of the Hawaii State Legislature in history. During her time in the legislature, she fought for clean energy leg legislation. However, in 2003, she enlisted in Hawaii's Army National Guard. In 2004, Rita Cabanilla primaried her for her seat in the state legislature. Cabanilla called on Gabbard to resign after joining the National Guard. Gabbard refused, but ceased campaigning, losing the nomination to Cabilla by a large margin. Gabbard then went on a 12-month tour in Iraq and was deployed twice. She returned home, and in 2010, she ran for the Honolulu City Council after Rod Grahams retired to run for mayor of Honolulu. Gabbard came in first in the first election and advanced to a runoff where she took down Sensanita Mopombo by a 58 to 41% margin. During her time on the Honolulu City Council, she supported legislation to loosen food truck parking restrictions, which was successful. In 2012, she announced she'd be running for the U.S. House of Representatives in the 2nd District after incumbent Democrat Maisie Hirono announced she'd retire to run for a U.S. Senate seat. Gabbard embraced a more progressive platform, supporting LGBT rights and access to abortion. After winning the nomination from her party, Gabbard resigned from her seat on the Honolulu City Council to focus on her campaign. Gabbard also traveled to North Carolina to speak for President Barack Obama at the 2012 Democratic National Convention that year. 
Tulsi Gabbard, she is going to be the one to watch tonight at the DNC. She defeated Republican Kawika Crowley by an 80 to 19 margin in November. A month after winning her election, Gabbard vied for an appointment to the U.S. Senate seat left vacant by David Inoue, who held the seat for almost 50 years before his death. However, Hawaii Governor Neil Abercrombie controversially appointed Lieutenant Governor Brian Schatz to the seat instead. During her time in Congress, Gabbard introduced the Helping Heroes Fly Act, which was an attempt to improve airport security screenings for injured and handicapped veterans, which easily passed bipartisanly in Congress and was signed into law by President Obama. Crowley challenged Gabbard to a rematch in 2014 and lost to Gabbard by a 78-18 to 18 margin. In spite of President Obama, a member of her own party, being born in Hawaii and winning the state by a whopping 40 points the same night Gabbard was elected, Gabbard was often at odds with Obama and disagreed with him on foreign policy issues. Gabbard, who was a non-interventionist, attacked Obama for his involvement in Syria. Eventually, Gabbard became the vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. However, she was at odds with the chair of the committee, Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and attacked her for holding only six debates throughout the entire 2016 Democratic primary cycle. Gabbard accused Schultz of trying to prop up former Secretary of State, former New York Senator, and former First Lady Hillary Clinton as the frontrunner. Her criticism of Schultz led to her being disinvited from the Las Vegas Democratic primary debate. Gabbard was informed she would be required to give her superdelegate to Clinton. However, Gabbard refused, and in February of 2016, she made national headlines from resigning from the Democratic National Committee to endorse Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders instead, siding with him for his non-interventionist voting record. So the Democratic Party has, has been using the superdelegate system where, um, as people are running for president, you have a certain number of, of delegates that go to one person or another uh, based on that state's rules. Rumors swirled that if Sanders was the nominee, he might choose Gabbard as his vice presidential pick. However, Sanders ended up losing the nomination to Clinton. Later, on the eve of the Democratic primary, leaked emails from WikiLeaks revealed that DNC officials conspired to help Clinton win in the primaries. This controversy led to Schultz resigning from her position as DNC chair. Multiple states, Bernie Sanders was listed as a write-in option during the general election, with Gabbard listed in the running mate section of the ballot. Clinton went on to lose to Republican New York businessman Donald Trump. That same night, she took down Republican Angela Caillou by an 81 to 18 percent margin. After Trump won, Gabbard became the source of attention for many Republicans. She came under fire from the left when white nationalist Richard Spencer said he hoped she'd run for president, and KKK wizard David Duke endorsed her to be Trump's Secretary of State. However, Gabbard has denounced both of these individuals. Gabbard endorsed Minnesota Congressman Keith Ellison for DNC chair, though he lost to former Labor Secretary Thomas Perez. Gabbard went on a trip to Syria and controversially said that she believed the United States should not take down Bashar al-Assad's 
reign as the nation's leader. Gabbard got in trouble for violating House ethics laws. A poll showed Gabbard was, quote, the Republicans' favorite Democrat in Congress. Gabbard supported Bernie Sanders' idea of a Medicare for All system. Rumors spread that Gabbard could seek the nomination for her party in 2020. However, Gabbard kept much of the hype in secret and won re-election to her seat in 2018, dispatching Republican musician Brian Evans by a 77 to 22% margin. In 2019, Gabbard penned an article criticizing Democrats for weaponizing religion. Many believe the criticism was aimed at Hawaii U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono, who once held Gabbard's seat. She fired back. In January of 2019, on Van Jones's show, Gabbard announced her candidacy for president. Now, she hopes to be the first woman president of the United States and the first president of South Asian descent. Every time we launch these interventionist regime change wars, it is not only our veterans who pay the price for that. For more presidential profiles 2020, keep it right here on Politics Weekly. New episodes every Tuesday.